Let's all go to the movies. Let's all go to the the movies. Let's all go to the the movies to get ourselves a treat. Delicious thing to eat. The popcorn can't be. Jordan T. Maxwell. <laughs> and uh, today we are talking about 1998's Blade, starring Wesley Snipes. Uh, we're talking about a daywalker. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this movie because I've only seen each of the movies in the Blade trilogy once and once only until this, you know, revisiting it now. So it's not one, it was, it was like seeing it again for the first time. It's been so long. Um, is this one that you had, uh, this character or this franchise, anything that you had a lot of like familiarity with before this movie? Um, I knew the character. I had encountered him uh, a few times in the comics uh, prior to this film uh, being released. Um, I, But I wasn't like super familiar. I was never that big into, at that point at the very least, into kind of Marvel's uh, horror comics. Um, I had read, I think the first appearance of Blade I had read was in a, uh, a Marvel Comics Presents story, which, uh, was an anthology book that used to come out and was actually my exposure to a number of characters, um, because I had a friend who had a number of issues that I would borrow and, you would get like three, sometimes four stories in an issue, uh, heavily serialized, usually featuring a Wolverine story. Uh, he was the headliner character, and that was where some of the most iconic Wolverine stories, uh, Barry Windsor Smith's uh, Weapon X comes most immediately to mind, but uh, that was where I found Werewolf by Night uh, for the very first time, who uh, has... Uh, is to werewolves, I guess, what Blade is to vampires and uh, has some shared history with Moon Knight, uh, who I'm sure will uh, come up in conversations uh, later on in our wonderful podcast. But I remember seeing the artwork and it was so dark and expressive. Um, and it just, it made a, a Big, big impact. And his character design in the comics, especially originally, they've adjusted it after the huge popularity of the movies. And as he's popped up in other media, they've kind of drastically redesigned him to bring him more in line with that, since that's the version most people know. But if you go back to the original blade stories in tomb of dracula and some of the uh, marvel horror anthology titles he is full-on 70s black exploitation 
like orange leather wide lapel jacket, uh, a a modestly sized afro, not not quite misty night uh, circumference, but certainly noticeable. <laughs> and these yellow, they're not even aviator shades. They're oh, they're 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 goggles. They are, for lack of a better term, they are goggles. And this is, I thought at the time. He looked so cool. It almost sounds like you're describing an R. Crumb drawing. I mean, you know, like, because yeah, I haven't seen it, so I'm, I'm going off of your description. It's, but. I mean, you know, you you kind of you, you put some big platform shoes on him, and you're not incredibly far off. But he looked so cool. And if you go back to the original, you go back to the original appearances. He was so he was created by uh, a pair of very iconic creators, uh, Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan. And Gene Colan is to my mind just one of the greatest, especially horror comics artists um, ever. And his design for the character, his costume design in particular, is very of the time. He's certainly uh, of that sort of black exploitation era. Uh, there, you know, the movies were creating Blackula, and so the comics had to create Blade uh, to. <laughs> properly combat him uh and hopefully any uh venture brothers fans out there will uh get a particular kick out of that but he was <laughs> it's very funny seeing him in sort of his mainstream media presentation now especially the uh the black leather trench coat uh wesley snipes playing him very very modern very uh late 20th early 21st century he was in the comics originally a he's he's british in the comics he is he was born in london in 1929 uh to a to a prostitute um, and was raised for uh the first years of his life by uh, his mother's co-workers in the brothel and uh, that that's the background, the original background of the character, and kind of seeing what he's become, and those things haven't really been retconned out of the comics, but since they weren't part of that sort of mainstream movie media representation, they've they just don't get mentioned very often. Um, and uh, Deacon Frost, the villain in this film is a part of his uh, origin story that they uh, eventually got around to, to telling. But he's not, you know, Stephen Dorff, uh, you know, pale, cool-looking, ruffled hair, you know, sexy Euro-trash version. He's, like, got mutton chops, and, you know, he's something out of a, a late 19th century political cartoon, almost. Uh, he was posing as the doctor who came to deliver... Uh, young master Eric Brooks uh, from his mother, uh, the sex worker, and uh, fed upon her uh, in the moment of his birth, which was what gave him, uh, similar to what we'll see in this, his uh, initially immunity to vampire bites, and then eventually the comics established him uh, as he is in this movie and in other media representations, a, a daywalker, a dompier, uh, yeah, that was an interesting thing to find out in the research that, you know, that conception of the character is this. He's a vampire who 
uh, as Chris Christopherson says, he has all the strengths of the vampires and none of the weaknesses. So he can go out during the day. He can eat as much garlic as he wants. Um, but in the original comic, that that he's really he's a human who's just immune to vampire vampire bites. Yes, he can't be turned. He he, he gained an immunity from uh, in uh, in the moment of his traumatic birth. Uh, gained this immunity, and then yeah, later on, uh, he and he didn't really have any particularly special abilities beyond that, beyond just being a really good fighter and being really cool, and as I mentioned before, a very snazzy dresser. Um, and they made him; they knew he he was because he looked so cool, and he like he had such a cool vibe about him. Uh, Marv Wolfman initially kind of. Wrote ba- wrote him back a little bit, uh, as uh, he says, uh, when they first introduced him in Tomb of Dracula, uh, because they didn't want him to overpower all the other characters in the comic. And eventually, they were just was like, "No, we can't hold this guy back anymore." Um, and Wolfman's also said in uh, several interviews that uh, you know Marv Wolfman, a uh, uh, a, a a Caucasian creator, uh, writing a black character who. Uh, in the seventies, um, not a lot of, uh, sadly, unfortunately, and still not nearly enough, but, uh, not a lot of, uh, black creators at that time. And so, you know, you go back and read some of those, uh, seventies comics from Marvel in DC and there is a, uh, unfortunately, uh, Black voice, I think, uh, is what uh, Wolfman described it as. That he had to grow as a writer to not try to uh, impersonate or write, uh, I suppose, what in modern parlance would be uh, an urban dialect. uh, Particularly for uh, a British character, (laughs) you know. He he Mm -hmm. should be, you know, he's played by, you know, Wesley Snipes in this. And, uh, of course, uh, with... Mahershala Ali coming into the role and being played and voiced primarily by American actors. But really, he probably, if he were to be voiced as he sounds in the comics, would probably be closer to like Idris Elba. Um, You know, kind of that uh, London accent. But, you know, still in their minds, it's like, oh, we have to write a particular voice for him to capture it. But they were writing based on like other media representations and kind of stereotypes and this very, I guess the literary voice equivalent of blackface uh, to a certain extent. Uh, it's right. the, not the most culturally sensitive uh, portrayals at this time. And at the same time, it it's the, the first moves towards progress of, you know, the very first black characters being introduced at this time. In addition to Blade, as I mentioned before, Misty Knight, uh, Luke Cage, Black Lightning, uh, who, um, you know, over at DC. And, you know, it it inches into the door. You start with stereotypes, something broad, and that could be regarded as very offensive now. But uh, then those writers, you know, start to mature a little bit. And newer, younger writers who perhaps are a little more worldly. And as we get more and more into the modern era of comics, a more still a lot needs to be done, but diverse and inclusive uh, voices so that, you know, black creators are writing black characters. But, you know, at this time, it's a very, 
um, I wouldn't say outright problematic, but I'm also uh, a straight white dude uh, <laughs> talking about this. Mm-hmm. So what I regard as not problematic right. and what others regard as not problematic. But it was a very important uh, step. Uh, more steps needed to I be taken and have been taken. But And I think having someone like Snipes come on board and making this character mainstream... And having him on board you know, for all three films, being a producer, having his voice, ad-libbing uh, on set, uh, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But it lends it a little more authenticity for, for a Vampire Slayer character. But I think that's really what people connected with uh, in the movie. And why I think still a lot of people are surprised when they find out that Blade is a not only a comics character, but a Marvel comics character. Yeah, I mean, we talked a lot in the last episode about how X-Men was, like, the first kind of big Marvel movie. Um, And this predates that by two years, but it almost, I don't want to say it doesn't count, but you could easily forget that this is a Marvel character um, because the movie doesn't, you know, X-Men is about, you know, a team of super-powered people fighting another team of super-powered people. Um, you know, it has all the trappings of a comic book movie. This does not. This is, you know, um, even though you get a Marvel logo at the beginning, um, you you would, if you took that away from it, you know, the average person would have no idea that this was based on a a comic book character. Sure. But then, like, once you kind of have that context for it, you look at it, and it is, for all the the vampire trappings and that kind of late 20th century, you know, black leather... Uh, you know, cool guy with a sword kind of stuff. He is a superpowered individual in a costume fighting other superpowered individuals in an urban setting. Um, you know, you really, if it weren't for the vampire element, uh, you know, if you replaced vampire with mutant, you know, Blade is, uh, Blade is Wolverine. <laughs> it's, uh, he is very. It is very much a superhero movie uh, at its core. I think there is an aesthetic to it that is of that time. And then you see what they did with uh, X Men after it. But you also, you know, maybe look back at uh, Tim Burton's Batman, and there was a an aesthetic of that time of the late eighties through the late nineties that you could cover up some of the more what were regarded, I think, at that time in Hollywood as embarrassing elements of uh, superhero the, as a genre and adapting comic books as a medium, that the you if you took out the more colorful elements of the costumes and just put them in black leather, then suddenly it becomes well, cool he's not and acceptable. A, yeah. He's not wearing a suit with nipples. Uh, as was the style at the time. Yes, yes, he did. Uh, yeah. He did transition us away from, uh, thankfully, from the nipple suits. Yeah, I, you know when I looked at this, I, I was like watching, going, "Man, this is really late '90s as fuck." Oh, um, yeah. You know, I didn't, you know, I didn't see this one in the theaters, but at that time, I was 18 uh, when this came out, and I just remember uh, when I, where I grew up, there is uh, a really cool old movie theater. Um, uh, I, I grew up in Laguna Beach, and there's a, it's a movie theater that's like, I want to say it's from the 30s. It's really old, maybe even older than that. That's right on the beach. And what made it cool was that it had a balcony. It was one of these old, old theaters mm. that still had a balcony. And I can remember lots of summers going with my friends, 
I'm like, what are we going to do? And, you know, it's the summer, we're 18, we got nothing. Let's go see a movie. And there was all these, like, super, you know, late 90s summer popcorn stuff. Didn't matter if it was good or bad. It was just, you know, something to do. And we didn't happen to see this particular movie, but, man, I saw a lot of movies like it. So watching this, this was like, oh, yeah, it's like I'm sitting in the balcony with my feet up on the thing, uh, you know, uh, checking this out. And the, the style of this movie in particular is so late 90s. Like, you look at The Matrix that came out the next year. Yeah. And it's, exa- it's the same techno music. It's the same leather. You know, like this was just in the water uh, at the time. And it, it really just transported me back there to, to watch this movie again. Oh, yeah. And I, uh, I, my most recent viewing of it uh, prior to preparing for this was uh, back Halloween of this most recent uh, previous year. Uh, I did a double feature uh, at home, just hanging out, not really wanting to go out, not really being able to go out because of, you know, the world. Um, and I did a double feature of this and The Crow. And they felt so very much of a piece. It was, you know, and they're, they're only a few years apart. And that was like a formative uh, time for me. Like that was like from middle school to high school. Um, and, you know, and I loved comics and I love superhero comics and I loved um not necessarily like monster comics but I like you know I was you know I was discovering you know Sandman and Alan Moore's uh Alan Moore's Alan Moore's Swamp Thing uh so like you know kind of the more like tragic romantic horror comics uh so you know like The Crow was you know just right up my alley and then when Blade came out uh I guess that would have been like end of high school uh, for me, towards the end of high school, for me, uh, it was just the, the, I was at that perfect age to love this, and I saw this in the theater and uh, absolutely loved it. Was probably one of a few, probably the only person in my theater who was having any thoughts about it being different from the source material in any way. But at the same time, I had zero problems with it being that different from the source material because what they did with it was so cool. It was just badass, and everything, uh, just the, the, yeah, the music, the clothes, it's all so surface level, but like, it's such good surface level. Um, yeah. You know, people have so much affection for this movie. And when I watched it, my initial thought was like, it's, it's schlocky, but that's not the right word. It's pulpy. Yeah. It's, you know, this is, it's very pulpy, but it's a lot of fun. Like it's, you know, is, it's, is it a quote unquote great movie? No, but it's a really good time. Yeah. It's a fun movie. And you can tell like that a lot of them are having fun doing it. Like no one feels like, Nothing feels mailed in. No one feels like they're just doing a, a paycheck. You know, people are, you know, they're like, yeah, it's 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 an action movie. We're all wearing, you know, black leather and open silk shirts. And um, it's, you know, violent and bloody. And there's a literal, like, <laughs> the movie opens with a sprinkler system full of blood raining over a rave. How are you going to take yourself right. too seriously in this movie and not just lean into it and have a good time? Like, and the, you know, dark, badass, vigilante character coming in and kicking everyone's ass. 
Like, as soon as he's done, you know, all of this, you know, the first thing he does when he gets, like, a moment to breathe is he does a little arm bump with a smile. And it's like, oh, this guy's having fun. Like, this is dark and brooding and all that. But at the same time, he's he's having some fun. It's a, There's going to be some irreverence to it. There's going to be some levity. Thank you, Donald Logue, for all that you've given us over the years. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's almost like you know, it has all of the, like, arch uh, elements and fun uh, and silliness that goes into a black exploitation movie with none of the problematics. Yeah. Of that genre. Like, it, 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 like it's like they just mined, strip mined all of the fun that's there from from that period. In fact, to the point where I, I think we should probably talk a little bit about the production of it. Like, that. This movie has been, there have been efforts to make the Blade character into a movie for a long time, so much so that the first person that they had in mind when this was originally pitched was Richard Roundtree. Right. And if you don't know who he is, he's a bad mother. Shut your mouth. I'm talking about Shaft. Well, um, then I can dig it. Th- thank you, by the way, for, for catching the bump set and spike. Oh, on that. I'm always um, like, here Jordan for a Shaft reference. For <laughs> so, yes, Richard Roundtree, famous, of course, for playing Shaft. Um, but then the project is mostly shelled. Um, there, there is until really they start talking about it, you know, again in the '90s uh, to make it. And there's a few names that I guess that got tossed around um, that to play Blade. Among them, Wesley Snipes, who was apparently really the only choice. They, I saw like you know Denzel Washington's name, LL Cool J, and uh, Lawrence Fishburne um, as being people that were considered, but never really too seriously. And I think they're right. Like, Wesley Snipes is the right man for this job. They're, you know, he is, um, for the kind of movie they're trying to make, not, not that none of those actors could play Blade and play him well, but they wouldn't fit in this movie. Yeah, it would they have would, needed to have been a different out. kind of film. And probably would have been a different kind of film with them in it. Not, you know, would it have been worse? Would it have been better? Uh, I can't say for sure either way, but I don't know if it would have been as fun. Yeah, and it's interesting that Wesley Snipes, at this point in his career, um, he is a a really well-trained, uh, you know, uh, expertly trained actor, very well-regarded, um, having been in uh, films thus far like A White Man Can't Jump, Jungle Fever, like these kind of, ser- you know, fairly well-regarded, serious movies. Um, but he also had already had some cred from doing action stuff. He had been in Demolition Man, yeah. I think, by this point. Great. Um, so he had, <laughs> yeah. That uh, unfortunately too prescient. We all laughed at it, and now it's kind of like, eh. yeah, I'm just um, waiting anyway, for those shells I, to show up now. <laughs> and I listened to a really interesting interview with him today, talking about you know this period and, and of his career and and why he decided to do Blade. And it was really funny. He said, you know, my management team, my agents and stuff, they didn't want me to do this movie. They you know they said your trajectory is you know more towards uh, you know Oscar bait. And you should keep doing stuff like that. And uh, he wisely saw this and he thought, you know, this is probably one of his most popular things he's ever done in his career. Oh, yeah. He, he chose correctly. Um, but he, they said, so So why did you do Blade? And he said, well, because something like, I've never seen a, a black vampire do karate. I want to see that. And that was it. That was all what it took for him, which is that, that concept, black yeah. uh, karate vampire hunter. Uh and that's all. And you know what? That's a very simple pitch for a movie. It's different. It's unique. Um, it, it's not that we hadn't had any 
uh, African American helmed um, big budget movies at this point. Um, all those people that I, I listed off as possible um, Blade um, alternatives, they all had movies like this. We had you know Independence Day. Will Smith was big by this point, but it, but despite those successes, it still was you know not the norm to the point where. Uh, I think New Line Cinema at one point said, "Could we? Uh, shouldn't we make Blade white? Would it be more you know, marketable <laughs> if he was white?" And it's like, no, <laughs> no, you're missing the one of the most unique things about the character. Um, and does he have to but, fight vampires? <laughs> and can we rostify him by about ten percent? Yeah, um, that's a Poochie <laughs> reference for The Simpsons for those who don't know. Um, you know, so. It was still a a, uh, a victory to have an African-American person play this character in a big-budget film. And uh, I think Wesley Snipes knocks it out of the park in a performance that is, you know, it, it's silly. Like, it's definitely, like, over the top. But it's over the top in a way that fits this tone of this movie. Like, it's, you know, it's it's exactly what it needs to be. Right, exactly. And I think it's so interesting, too, that, you know, and, and some of this is somewhat apocryphal, but I think it's sort of accepted lore around the movie at this point, that it's, it was sort of a uh, consolation prize, almost, because uh, he wound up doing this after trying for a very long time to develop a uh, a Black Panther movie, where Snipes was going to be uh, T'Challa. Uh, long before anyone uh, had heard the name Chadwick Boseman, when you know only the the truly hardcore geeks knew words like vibranium and Wakanda, uh, Snipes wanted to uh, play uh, the king of Wakanda and bring the original uh, Black Marvel superhero uh, to the big screen and it kind of languished back and forth. There were like a number of development treatments with a number of really great directors. Uh, I remember reading uh, a story about uh, the late great John Singleton uh, Snipes bringing him on to make a pitch and him wanting to like tie T'Challa and Wakanda into the actual like Black Panther movement and like create a movie where it was almost this like alternate history vibe of Hmm. Uh, that he had come to America and started this movement and everything and used that as a way to sort of explore that. And they weren't really into that. And I don't know. I thought it was a very interesting pitch. And I thought that, you know, like it could have been cool. I don't know that it would have worked necessarily, but I would have loved to have seen that glorious failure. Uh, but also, yeah. you know, things kind of happen the way that, you know, they're meant to happen sometimes. And we, instead we got an amazing blade movie, uh, the, According to, you know, some two uh, really amazing Blade movies. According to almost no one, uh, <laughs> three. <laughs> three Blade movies were made. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and then years later we get uh, Chadwick, uh, God bless him, uh, who just made that part his own and made that character... Um, a cultural icon uh, almost instantly. And I don't know that you would have had the way that superhero movies were viewed and regarded at this time. I don't know 
that you would have had the same impact, unfortunately, um, either with an earnest uh, source accurate uh, treatment or something closer to what Singleton wanted to do or uh, the you know producer in the room was like, you know, it's like, well, we really Panthers test really well, but does he have to be black? Can he be from yeah, I don't Ohio? Think he made that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think you could have gotten that movie made back then. Part yeah. of it is, yes, you know that those those kinds of forces about you know should he be black or, you know, but I think there's also a market force there that would have messed up that character, in that I think that what makes T'Challa tick, you know, especially as he's rendered in in uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, is that he's just a guy with he has a really big heart and he's kind yeah. of a sensitive guy, uh, like a soft spoken guy, and. That would not fit with superheroes in the nineties. You know, the, the, right. you don't get that. You get, you know, uh, you, you get something more like this, where it's like he's all hard edged. Yeah, you know, that, it I had don't to be bombastic. Everybody had to be the next Batman. Every, you know, there there wasn't room for, you know, you hadn't had, and yet at the same time, this, you know, this is one of the steps I think that gets us to T'Challa. That gets us to Black Panther. You know, that Blade comes forward and shows. Uh, that audiences will turn out in droves for uh, a black-led action movie, for a black-led superhero movie, uh, for a black-led uh, comic book adaptation movie. Um, when, as you said, you know, there were a number of voices at that time that said, you know, oh, no, this is, you know, we're not going to be able to, we, we can't sell this to kids. Oh, what, what do you mean? It's an R-rated movie. Oh, no, no, no. Like, you know, just have all the, you know, blood off screen. You know, like, what, what are you going to do? Then this movie comes out and it's such a hit and it's such like not even a cult classic. It's just, you know, a, a fan favorite uh, to the point that people still, you know, they're making a new, you know, Blade movie now with Mahershala Ali for the MCU. And people are still talking about uh, wanting Snipes to come back and wanting to incorporate him and have, you know, that Blade be like retconned into the MCU uh, as the original. Paging Doctor Strange. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he's, he's beloved, uh, and you don't get to that. Yeah. He is in that very kind of grim and gritty brooding black leather clad, uh, kind of era of superhero films. It's a time that we were moving away from kind of, uh, Christopher Reeves, Superman. And it was before we got to, uh, Chris Evans, Captain America, where, you know, the, the, the earnest, do-gooder superhero was seen as corny at the time you know you you couldn't have had someone like t'challa you know coming out and being like you said that soft-spoken that uh leading from a place of wisdom and a place of heart um you would have had to have had him be uh tragic and and you know and there's there is certainly a tragedy and a trauma to uh t'challa's origin story uh but uh, both in the comics and the, uh, the 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 movie version, but uh, he would have had to, you know, he would have just the entire movie would have been uh, a revenge-driven film of him going and hunting down everyone who uh, betrayed and killed his father and hunting that. More of kind of who he was a bit in you know Civil War, but with no other heroes around him, no great epiphany of. Uh, you know, oh, I've been misled and this is not what my father would want. It would have been, you know, no, he's entirely justified because, you know, revenge was like the great motivator at that time. Um, and even in even in this movie, it's it's 
made into a very personal uh, story. And it is, in a sense, almost uh, in in the kind of vein that uh, 89's uh, Batman and Tim Burton's Batman kind of retroactively became a revenge movie by making the Joker uh, the one who kills Bruce Wayne's parents. That then going up against him gets him that, you know, revenge. Here it's, you know, here it's Deacon. And it's like, you know, oh, Deacon actually did this to his mom. And actually his mom's still around. And so it becomes a much more personally staked movie. (laughs) Pun intended. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was just, that was a very common trope of the time to the point that, you know, I think watching it even the first time, uh, in those flashback sequences, I was just like, hmm. Yeah, no, he's the guy who uh, who bit his mom. I didn't see his mom still being around coming uh, the first time that I saw it. But I was definitely kind of prepared for that. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, here it comes. And, and they still pull it off well, and it's a lot of fun. And, you know, it does give it that, you know, immediate personal stakes. But uh, it was very much of that time that, you know, oh, this is a revenge story. This is, he's got to be... Uh, broody and gritty and at the same time he cracks jokes because we you know you've got to have uh, even then a Marvel movie had to have its quota of quips yeah and in a 90s movie you need your share of one liners you know you oh, need a, yeah. if you're not going to have Arnold Schwarzenegger you need to have someone say things like that you know um, yeah you got to have you your say. welcome to earths and your uh, <laughs> hasta la vistas right um, I do want to mention a couple more people on the on the production side before we hop into the recap. Uh, one, uh, this is directed by Stephen Norrington, uh, who is an enigma to me. Um, he directed two very small films before this that I've never heard of. Uh, he directed this, and then he directed uh, the not-so-great League of Extraordinary Gen- uh, Gentlemen I don't know adaptation. what you're talking about. That movie has never been adapted to film, and uh, it's not a Marvel comic, so we don't have to cover it here, I don't, and I never have to acknowledge <laughs> That's right. its existence. So, and then he disappeared off the face of the earth, as far as I can tell. And uh, was, he, he did come. Oh that. no, sorry, I was thinking of another. I was thinking of mm-hmm. Alex Proyas because I was doing the. Um, <laughs> I was reading up on both of them when I was doing that uh, Crow uh, Blade double feature, and was like, Alex Proyas made Gods of Egypt, and then for some reason that got turned around in my head that Stephen Norrington had made Gods of Egypt, and it's like, no, he 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 quit after League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because apparently. He found working with Sean Connery to be so awful that he just couldn't take it anymore. Um, I, I don't know. I couldn't. I didn't see specifically. I didn't bother to run down what his deal was, what his beef was with with Connery. Um, I could certainly imagine Sean Connery being difficult to work with, but I don't know how you know what went down. It just struck me as funny that like he's like that was it, the straw that broke the camel's back. This actor who's this close to retirement and he never has to work with again. That's it. No more movies. Um, well, and I'd, I'd heard the, <laughs> the exact opposite that like that Connery had considered quitting acting after working with Norrington on that. <laughs> wow. So I think All they right, just so didn't like yeah. each other very much. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, and if that friction had turned out film. a good, enjoyable <laughs> film, uh, then it would be as like, oh, well, that's the kind of alchemy that uh, you, you've got to have sometimes. But instead, instead, uh, we it's get... It's a piece of garbage. 
Oh God, <laughs> I'm just yeah yeah you had to make me think of that. And I knew we were going to talk about it because I knew Norrington had done it, and I, I was trying to avoid thinking about it. Well, we can leave it. Uh, we can leave it in the dirt. The other person I do want to talk about is uh, David Goyer. Yeah. Who wrote the entire Blade trilogy and then had a hand. He didn't. Uh, uh, do this solo, but he has a, a writing credit on the all of the Dark Knight trilogy. Yes, which, uh, that's a good feather in your cap. Oh yeah, well I mean he's had. Uh, you look at his entire uh, writing CV and uh, the the number of uh, superhero films and comic book adaptations that he's been involved in, either adapting or uh, producing or ju- or developing, because uh, a number of them certainly never. Uh, made it all the way to screen, but uh, yeah, he's he's sort of made his career around these characters and this this lore, um, which is why I tried to ignore those uh, really stupid, ignorant comments he made about She Hulk a few years ago. Um, and uh, if if, if y'all want to get a, just a little bit mad. Uh, Go look up uh, mm-hmm. D- David Escoyer, She-Hulk, uh, and read some of those comments, and join wow. me in my umbrage. But yeah, he does, and I believe he actually he wrote all three of these, and he, uh, I believe, directed the third one. Uh, that I can't remember off the top of my head. I think yeah, I one. think Blade Trinity. I know the second uh, one was yeah. his. Uh, directing debut, and uh, he was never, to my knowledge, asked to direct anything ever again. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did see it. I have no memory of it. I'm, I do have stronger memories of seeing Blade Two uh, in the theater, uh, and I know that was directed by Guillermo. I'll never be able to say it. Guillermo del Toro. Guillermo del Toro. Uh, thank you. You're uh, very welcome. I just so, William del Toro, uh, <laughs> who's. Uh, <laughs> Certainly made a name for himself since. So, um, but anyway, we should probably get on to uh, the recap because there's a lot to cover here as we um, as we go through this. So, we start off with a blood red New Line logo, and uh, I'll say it, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again: if you're a movie studio, make do something cool with your logo yes. to match the movie. Change Always. it up. Always fun. Uh, and we are at a hospital in 1967. Where a pregnant woman uh, is on a gurney and she's got a big old neck wound. Uh, so we know what that means. Uh, vampires are about. Uh, she's having a C-section. We see her um, uh, Her ID says Vanessa Brooks. Uh, the baby is taking out. She's taken out of her. She reaches for him. And that's it. We, we do a quick time lapse of day to night and then it's present day. Um, this is an interesting way to start the movie because it... It doesn't give you a whole lot of details. It's like I'm not. How do I? How am I supposed to know who Vanessa Brooks is? You know, like that's. It's just a lady. Yeah. Um, you know, it's. It makes more sense when you've seen when you're watching it the second time. Uh, otherwise, yeah. I think this is sort of disorienting. Almost it's like what? Oh, oh, what? Oh, we're doing. We're cutting to thirty years later. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, I think even know, if hard, you would like to track cut it. to thirty years later and you're seeing like. Blade himself, like perched on a rooftop or you know whatever the you know iconic uh shot you want to have as an opening hero shot then like your mind would make the connection of oh this is that kid 30 years later but 
We don't do that. Or even oh, if you had a, like no, that scene <laughs> precedes like the studio logo. Like that's your little sort of lead into, and then it's like you know it's this little encapsulation of his origin uh, before you get into the main thrust of the narrative. But instead, like yeah, it is a little jarring that you go from that hospital scene to uh, a couple of. Uh, very very white people in a, in a convertible yeah. uh, and uh, you know speeding down the highway, um, you know a uh, <laughs> uh, porn legend Tracy Lords and uh, I I love the fact and I didn't Some realize guy. it was him until after well it was the uh, fans of the Shield. Uh, the old uh, Michael Chiklis FX show, uh, and I hate that I can call it an old uh, Michael Chiklis FX show now, but uh, it's the actor who played uh, Lim on that show, uh, who's popped up uh, in a whole bunch of kind of character actory roles. Uh, I think he always does a great job. I can't remember his name right now. I've actually met him a couple of times when I was uh, living out in Los Angeles. Uh, and super nice guy, hmm. uh, but had completely blanked on the fact that it was him in this role until uh, I was rewatching it at Halloween. And I was just like, holy crap, it's Lim! Um, who uh, just, you know, d- does better uh, sitting in the seat of this car than uh, his sitting in a the seat of a car fate in The Shield, Michael. Spoiler alert. Um, that's my fun little... Easter egg, <laughs> eagle-eyed, <laughs> noticing. <laughs> uh, well, th- they are fooling around in the car as they're like speeding around in a way that you know only cinematically connotes at least one of these people is going to be in a lot of trouble soon. Oh yeah. Um, and she she leads him into a slaughterhouse. She walks up to like a bouncer, speaks some weird language to him that doesn't you know, we've never heard before. Uh, and they go into, again, the late 90s techno club. This is, you know, again, think the uh, Dragula scene in the first Matrix movie. You know, it's just people in leather dancing around having a good time. And this dude is literally, you know, he is a red shirt wearing a red shirt. Um, <laughs> you know, he he looks like, uh, he looks a little like Randall from Clerks, right? He's just sort of, um, you know, being led around like, oh, my goodness. He's, you know, he, he sticks out like a sore thumb in the middle of this club. Everybody's wearing just all you know, black and whites, no colors. Um, for a split seconds, uh, we see Stephen Dorff, who's our villain, Deacon Frost, uh, menace this guy, and then kind of fade into the background again. Um, this is kind of, I think, Stephen Dorff's biggest role, uh, or what he's most known for. Um, I couldn't think of much else that uh, you know immediately pops to mind. He's primarily, it's definitely the biggest uh, film. I think you're right. He's sort of built his career around doing uh, more indie, kind of grittier uh, roles, um, lower budget films. Uh, I think, I think by choice. Um, But (laughs) I mean, I think he's, uh, I think he's a good actor um, and I've enjoyed him in a number of other things. Uh, I certainly, uh, didn't much care for some of his recent comments about uh you know superhero films uh but uh he's certainly entitled to his opinion and he's built a career being uh you know kind of a wise ass and uh you know he's he's staying on brand with it and he certainly uh understood the assignment for this film uh and immediately 
the uh, the universal sign of this is our bad guy, the uh, accidental shoulder bump that immediately earns a glower. Uh, if you were a henchman, <laughs> he would have picked a fight, but he's the big boss, so all he does is stare menacingly because he knows he doesn't have to kill this guy. No, he 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 definitely has bigger fish to fry. He's they're not going to bother with this dude. Yeah. Um. He, but yeah, Stephen Dorff has like he's perfect for being like this kind of douchey villain. Like he has a face you want to punch. You know, yeah. like he just. He just looks that way. Um, He's also just got like so a very our, vampiric our... kind of like classically vampiric sort of facial structure. He's got those like kind of arch eyebrows and just very lean lupine features. You know, he just he looks menacing, but in like like I want to punch you, but also kind of make out with you. Like I don't really. There's there's something that like. Like, dude, button up your shirt, but also don't button up your shirt. Like, <laughs> he's got that, you know, he can pull off, but he's, he's got layers is what I'm saying. Well, he looks like a vampire the same way that, like, Liv Tyler looks like an elf. You're right, just exactly. Like, well, yes, of course, you should cast her as Arwen. She, she's already, you barely need any makeup. She's all, she's 90% of the way there. Yeah. Um so uh, our red shirt guy looks down. He sees blood on his hand and looks up. And, and this thing happens. You mentioned already that the the sprinklers go off and there's just a shower of blood everywhere. And every all of these people at this rave are going nuts for it. Uh, and all of a sudden, everyone's fangs come out. And we you know we realize what's happening. This dude is freaking out. He's trying to escape. And enter Blade. And nobody is um, no like in, uh, you know the whole time with the DJ going and everything. Only in this moment do we notice the words "bloodbath." Uh, I mean, it's really more of a shower yeah. than a bath, but uh, you know. <laughs> and also, just missed opportunity not uh, incorporating Peter Gabriel's Red Rain into this scene. I, I'm ju- I'm just saying, like, oh sure, it was right there. Yeah, this is definitely not the movie to use the, um, like, weird, you know, a, a, the juxtaposition of a song that doesn't fit <laughs> with, uh, with the action. Um, that kind of stuff comes later where it's like, you know, um, uh, Evan Peters running around to time in a bottle in ah, uh, Days of Future Past, you know, something like that. Um, but anyway, yes, uh, now uh, Blade comes in and he kicks a whole bunch of ass um, and he's shooting everyone with these shotgun shells that when it hits them it turns them into this like poof of cgi glitter um which is uh you know this is the one thing about the movie that does not hold up i think the cgi in this movie is by and large pretty rough um even by late 90s standards so when everyone say like well you know it's the late 90s they were doing the best they could like th- this is one year before you got like the matrix um you know the phantom menace for all of its problems uh you know a lot of uh, pretty impressive looking cgi for the time so we could do this in the late 90s better than this. But, you know, this is made on a $45 million budget. And this so is still the, that part, this is that, the high-end yeah. version of uh, the dusting effect that we got uh, for seven seasons on uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Buffy the Vampire That's exactly uh, so, what you I know, thought. I, yeah, this is right Being used to that level of effect, coming into this and watching this kind of like glowing ember effect as they burn away, I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, you watch it now and you're just going to like, oh. Yeah, okay. Uh I can see that 
the budget did not necessarily go into uh, into this part of the film. Uh, but you know, but at the time it was just like, oh, this is a fancy dusting. <laughs> yeah, I will say the practical effects in this movie are great. Oh yeah, um, the practical effects look really good, and uh, in my memory, at least the the digital effects for Blade Two are light years ahead of this. They, they really up their game. Oh yeah, and uh, I mean, like like you stuff. do with uh, just about any Del Toro movie, uh, and I, we'll talk more about that when we uh, get to that film. But you know, that dude knows his practical effects. I mean, like he uses digital effects really well, but I think like he really kind of took what had been established uh, in kind of the makeup and prosthetic game of uh, this first film and, you know, brought his own kind of creature sensibilities to it, but it still felt very much of this world. And that's because I think that, you know, this initial outing in this world really established uh, some interesting and very cool looking makeup and uh, prosthetic effects. And yeah, you know, the, the digital effects feel very dated. And, uh, you know, if you've ever seen the, um, what might have been for uh, the film's climax with Deacon. Oh yeah, I was going to save that for when we get there. Yeah. That, that's a whole other uh, crazy bit of effects work that we'll get to the, uh, the alternate ending. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Let's put a pin in that one. (laughs) Yeah. We'll we'll Um, spare that in the chamber with the other garlic bullets. You're right. Um, so uh, at this point, uh, Donal Logue comes in to threaten um, Blade. This is like he's like the number one henchman in this movie. Yeah. Um, Donal Logue, uh, Logue, of course, is you know from the vagina Donal Logues, and he is um, he's just a really fun character actor. He plays a lot of characters like this, which is like he's a good actor. But like, man, if you want somebody to be like a wisecracking side character. Um, oh, he's yeah. a great go-to guy. He yeah, like he. Plays, I remember this um, was the first thing uh, I remember seeing him in. Uh, aside from that, I knew I was seeing him in because, of course, then you know, years later, finding out that he was the uh, the cabbie in all those old uh, MTV uh, commercials. Um, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. That took me by surprise because someone was like, "You know that's him," and then I was like, "No way, that dude's so oh my god!" And then yeah, of course I. I've just followed him for, you know, so much of his, you know, uh, Terriers and Grounded for Life and Dow of Steve and just, yeah, dude is awesome. But yeah, he, he knows the type he's meant to play and he plays it and he plays it super well Uh, and he does it as a vampire here and it's great. Yeah. Most recently, the thing I remember him from is I I don't think this show was great, but he was uh, Harvey Bullock in uh, Gotham. Yeah. And, like, if you want a live-action Harvey Bullock, you, you, you can't... This is a good choice. Yeah, um, it was definitely... And I have to point out... Hmm? Go ahead. Oh, uh, oh no, I was, just, I was agreeing with you. I was like, I don't think it's a, a good show, but uh, the casting on that show is, at least for the two seasons I was able to stick with it, uh, was super on point. And, I mean, as soon as they announced it and that he was going to be playing... Bullock for the show who uh, I've loved uh, for years in the comics and I know it's a Marvel podcast but I'm going to s- spread some DC love here uh, loved him in the comics for years loved him in Batman the Animated Series and they were like oh uh, Donald Logue is going to be playing Harvey Bullock for Gotham and I was just like that is perfect casting um, yeah yeah 
Because that, like, he's, you know, you're a detective instead of a vampire. It's, it's, it's a Donald Logue. But he's a funny schlub. Yeah, exactly. Um, he also, I, we, we, I, I want to make sure we always do this when it happens. Um, but we, what, I want to point out a Marvel double duty uh, here. And he is, uh, he's a character in uh, Ghost Rider. And I, you know, it's been a long time since I saw that movie. Um, so, uh, but I did notice it on his IMDb thing. I'm like, oh, he, okay. He's done at least one other Marvel thing. Yeah. So, for for once, I'm going to have to take um, your, your word on it because uh, <laughs> I think watching it for this podcast will be the first time that I see Ghost Rider, either of the Ghost Rider films. Oh, you've never you've never seen them at all? Okay. No. Uh, I think no, maybe no, we'll no, no, no. Okay. The trailers, I was just... That is... That's not my Johnny Blaze. <laughs> I never saw the second one. Um, I think maybe that might be a fun one to pull out when it's Halloween time uh, yeah. and do because, you know there is always entertainment value to be had with Nicolas Cage. So uh, oh, whether yeah. he's really embodying the correct Johnny Blaze, I don't know. But if you want to see Nicolas Cage do some weird Nicolas Cage shit, uh, you, you will not be disappointed. I'll say that. And you got some Sam Elliott, too. Anyway, uh, let's get back to Blade. Yes. So we get this <laughs> sword play uh, between Blade and Donal Logue in this giant shower. Um, there's like He has this weapon that he throws. It's like, I want to call it like a big, it's like a, it's like a, if a boomerang and a ninja star had a baby. It's this like, I mean, it's, it's almost like a figure eight shaped thing. It's the Giver. I mean, it's 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 a smaller version, yeah. but it's it's the Giver. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so he throws this thing. Um, don't sorry. They, they, the fight kind of spills over into this like room that I guess is like some sort of a big shower. Yeah, and Blade ends up pinning Donal Logue to it. Uh, his character, this character's name is Quinn, by the way. Um, yes, and he says, "I'm." He says, "I'm something like I'm tired of chopping you up," which indicates you know they, these guys have tangled before. Yeah, and he so he just sets him on fire and says, "Give my regards to Frost." We don't know who that is. We don't really know why Blade has it out for this particular vampire. I mean, he has it out for all of them. Um, but this starts this really fun running gag of Donal Logue's character just being um, physically ruined. And then because he's a vampire, he eventually, you know, heals and grows back only to have like his arm chopped off again later. Like it's this great, like, um, this is the kind of thing you do to the big Lebowski's car. Like you just seems getting wrecked more and more over the course of a movie. Uh, and it works. It's really fun. Uh, so Blade walks off into the night um, and we go to the morgue. I think it is also worth uh, noting really quick. I did give her a shout out uh, a little bit earlier, but uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Tracy Lords, who is given like not top billing, but she is a credited uh, like in the opening credits, her name and the closing credit, her name appears rather prominently. And really all she does is uh, drive with this guy uh, to the bloodbath and then get shot in the head by Blade. But she's Tracy Lord, and it's a new line movie in the nineties. So and she's a name. You yeah. give her a name credit. I wonder if that almost is like one of those things that goes back to like Janet Lee and Psycho. Yeah. Where they want to say, Look who's in this movie. And surprise, they're dead in the first ten minutes. You know? Yeah. Like it, it maybe a little bit of misdirect, like, you know, oh, she's gonna be like a much bigger thing, and then nope, boom. Gone. Yeah. 
Um, so Donald Logue's body is taken to the morgue for discount Nathan Fillion to examine. <laughs> and um, they're, they're examining him, and you know, he's pointing out things we, you know, we would already know, you know, like, hey, he's got these weird pointy teeth, um, you know, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. And he asks the tech, who will later find out her name is uh, Karen, um, if she had second thoughts about dating him. Uh, at which point, Logue just gets up and bites the crap out of him. She runs for it. He bites her. Blade comes in, cuts off his arm. Uh, and we hear, motherfucker, are you out of your damn minds? <laughs> um, like, just, this is our first time getting, like, a, really any dialogue out of him. And we get this great, like, comic line out oh, of yeah. Blade, which is great. Um, it, it, uh, it also, really uh, worth noting real quick, just as long as we're calling out uh, Marvel Double Duties, the that uh, <laughs> discount Nathan Fillion is a very uh, accomplished and uh, a really good uh, character actor, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Tim uh, Guinea, um, who we have noted before on one of our very first episodes. I think it was our second episode because he plays uh, the Air Force uh, kind of commander. You mentioned in, that. In You're right. Man. You did. Yeah, you called that out in the uh, in the Iron Man episode. So I've got I, I've got to call it back here. That. We've got to link the two together now. <laughs> anytime that we do, yep. that. <laughs> yep. And uh, apologies if I'm still mispronouncing your name, Tim, uh, because I've I'm, mm-hmm. uh, I've been a fan of your work in a number of things, and I'm sure he's a big fan of the podcast. So I just want to yeah. make sure that we give him proper shout out. But yeah, also that you know that yeah, Blade first love, <laughs> motherfucker, you out of your mind. And it's like, you know, the, you know, you've got security guards and cops and stuff, you know, coming up against him. And it's like, you know, wait, no, but he's the hero. Why is he fighting cops? We haven't yeah. gotten the like the reveal that like, oh, the cops are you know on the vampire take at this point. And so you're like, it's like, wait, is he the good guy? Is this like, you know, we're not sure. We're still like uncertain of anyone's allegiances in this world. Uh, and I thought that was very smartly done. And also, yeah, just motherfucker, you out of your mind. Really great uh, insight into this character. Uh, again, along the lines of that, you know, kind of arm pump and uh, smile after slaughtering all those vampires. Uh, you know, he's he's a brooding killer, but he, he's having some fun too. <laughs> yeah, it's that it's unique again. It's that action movie comedy line. Exactly. Um, that you need to kind of just go like, okay, we're going to lighten the, the mood of this thing a little bit. Because up till now, it's been pretty grimdark. Yeah. And, and you could have had, like, okay, and like, we're going to have a little fun. Yeah. And we'll continue to be, you know, going into it. But, you know, it's, it is definitely that left line. Because you don't need that line there. Like, the scene plays without it. It's intense and horrifying. And, but it's always like, oh, okay, oh, let's let's give people a little, you know, let's give them a little bit of release. It's not a full-on horror movie. It's horror action. It's got some comedy elements. So, so let's have Wesley Snipes say a really cool Wesley Snipes line here. Uh, and I would not be at all surprised to learn that that was one of the lines that he ad-libbed. Because it is, it feels very Snipesian. Uh, and Snipesque? We'll come back to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It and it just gives you that little bit of that little bit of release, that little bit of comedic catharsis of, okay, I can laugh at this. Yes, I just watched uh, this guy get his throat ripped out by uh, immolated corpse that is rising from the grave, and 
is now stalking naked through these halls and uh, killing people. But Wesley Snipes just said, motherfucker, and that means everything's going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Donal Logue uh, takes off uh, out a window, to, he goes to an ambulance, I remember, uh, and Blade, he sees Karen on the ground bleeding out. So he picks her up, he runs out, he throws her to the building across like the street which I guess does not kill her. Um, and then he jumps himself all the way, you know, the, across the street to this other building, grabs her and runs. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that jump scene is pretty cool. That lets us know, hey, Blade's got superpowers. He's yeah. not just skilled. He's, you know, he's got abilities of his own. And I, uh, you know, that effect I thought was pretty good. The the jumping Thing. Yeah, and to um, the point it becomes a very, you know, for the next, I think, like, five years or so in superhero cinema, that becomes a, a kind of iconic, like, this is how we know it's a superhero, is he does this extraordinary jump from one, from one, one roof, to, roof another. to another. You, know, you see Morpheus do it, of course you see Spider-Man do it, you know, it's just a daredevil, you know, it just becomes this, like, he's like, oh, yeah, he's, he's a, a city superhero who can do extraordinary things and uh and there are buildings here for him to do them on which is why very few superheroes are uh stationed uh in the midwest or in uh great rural plain areas because uh, <laughs> you gotta have that yeah, kind of urban gymnastics in nebraska thing. yeah <laughs> um so i was curious i was trying to figure out like where this is supposed to take place now the skyline is los angeles yeah if you're familiar with it but i don't the movie never explicitly says hey we're in los angeles so i i don't know um where this is meant to take place yeah so, i kind of um, i read it as know. being just sort of that like you know film version of you know it's like hey uh we've got establishing shots of los angeles so even if we maybe film this in toronto uh it's it's vaguely la-ish enough that um, but yeah, I think, you know, for sure, because the, <laughs> the, the way I know it's not, uh, New York is that there's no scene on a subway. Yes. And there's far fewer buildings. So, <laughs> yes. so we know it's at least not New York city. And no one's downtown. Um, okay. Uh, so no one really goes there. <laughs> Uh, so we have this scene of we're, we're traveling at night, kind of looking up at the sky. This is meant to be sort of. Karen's point of view is she's sort of, you know, woozy and out of it uh, in Blade's car. And we come to, we go through a train yard and we go to what, you know, the, the first time I saw this set, it's the interior of this, like, de decrepit factory. It reminded me a lot of um, Robocop. Yeah. Like, it, it has that look to it. It is, in fact, I, I looked this up, it is a an actual defunct shampoo factory in Canoga Park, California. Um, so that's where they've set up, is uh, you know, in the shampoo place. Um and, well, that's and, why Blade uh, feels so full-bodied. You know, yes, he, has, uh, he takes good care of his hair. Yes. <laughs> and we meet uh, Whistler, Abraham Whistler. Um, this is a new character for the movie that is sort of based on an equivalent character from the comics who is basically ba uh, Blade's Q. Yes. Uh, and slash Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, and, is, uh, uh, introduced later on, uh, is named uh, Jamal Afari. Um, and, uh, here's a little throwback to, uh, last episode. 
because the character was uh, co-created by Mr. Chris Claremont, who uh, I shouted out the brilliance of several times during our X-Men episode. Uh, and uh, Tony uh, DeZuniga, um, who was uh, also, I mean, not on a, to my mind at least, not on a Gene Colan level, but very active uh, for both uh, Marvel and DC uh, especially during the uh, the late seventies and early eighties, uh, and just really wonderful talent. Um, but yeah, the, the the character was introduced uh, a few years uh, into um, Blades. W- once Blade kind of started getting spun off into his own solo adventures outside of uh, Tomb of Dracula and uh, the uh, oh, what was Hannibal King's t- team name? What was it Night Stalkers or? Uh, um, I know it was in Daywalkers because that's, <laughs> but um, yeah, once once Blade was kind of off on his own, they kind of had to start expanding uh, an ensemble and a backstory more for him beyond just uh, his origin. And this character was uh, the one uh, Jamal Afari was created for that, who then became Abraham Whistler, played by uh, one of the OG Highwaymen himself, uh, Chris Christopherson. Um, who I'm just always happy to see Chris Christopherson in a movie. And, you know, like I grew up, uh, you know, on uh, his music and, uh, and Willie and Waylon, Johnny Cash. And uh, I just love it. It's like having Tom Waits show up in a movie. It's just like, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> it just gives it like just some like earth, like some soil in it. You know, it's just like, oh, this feels dusty and right now that, you know, <laughs> now that Chris Christopherson's here to growl his way through some exposition that's blade yeah, he's, he's definitely he's your a day walker yeah, he, he's a conduit for exposition for sure um best known by the way if you're if you're not uh, familiar with chris christopherson uh as an actor uh, again as you mentioned he's a famous musician probably best known for writing the janice joplin hit me and bobby mcgee yep uh so if you like that tune uh you will like other stuff he wrote um, but here, yeah, he, this, he's named Abraham Whistler as a nod to uh, Abraham Van Helsing from Dracula. And uh, he says, you know, tells Blade he should have killed her because she's probably going to turn into a vampire. Um, they inject her with some garlic and basically he says, look, she's got a 50-50 chance of making it and not turning into a vampire. So uh, she is in uh, a precarious point, to be sure. And Chris Christopherson is dressed... Like, he looks not quite... He doesn't have a cowboy hat. He's missing the cowboy hat. But they definitely give him this country-western vibe that fits, you know, his country-western personality. Oh, yeah. And it's a really nice kind of contrast to to Blade, who is, you know, this, you know, mostly dour guy in a leather trench coat. You know, it, it puts that level... It, it kind of makes it seem... You know, takes the self-seriousness of it out a bit. Just have this, you know guy going like whatever eric you know giving him a he's this guy can he's earned the right to give blade some shit yeah and, exactly uh, no, this this movie if they were gonna have uh whistler in the uh the new if <laughs> and if he hadn't already appeared in an mcu role you'd probably get jeff bridges for this role now uh, come on blade oh yeah yeah what are we doing here blade yeah this 50 50 shit Oh, uh, listen, man. We gotta uh, kill some 
vampires. Um, so when we got to the vampire council. Um, this is this is neat because this is our first insight into like vampire culture. Yeah, and it's kind of cool. Like they're not just like a horde of monsters. There's like a whole legacy and a history, and there's a language and like runes and stuff. Like they. These guys let you know that like the vampires have been around forever, and this is their they have like a government to kind of try and keep things under wrap. And we then they you know they you know they're they are voicing their concern over Blade you know coming around and killing vampires, which I get that it certainly makes sense for them to have a problem with that. Yeah. And they bring in Deacon Frost. We we, we meet Brandon. I'm sorry, um, Stephen Dorff again. And we, I'm not sure what his position exactly is. He's obviously prominent enough among the vampires to be summoned to this council. He knows them all personally, or you know, as well. Um, but he's definitely on the outs with them uh, because his actions create unwanted attention. That's going to make people, you know, the humans, ultimately come around, find out there's vampires, and do something about it. And Frost basically says we should be ruling the humans. You know, we're the predators, they're the prey. Fuck them. Uh, and he says, you know, look, you're not a purebred. The, the, the council were all actually born as vampires. Frost was turned from a human into a vampire. Uh, to which uh, Frost says, well, someday you may find yourself extinct. Ooh, ah. Um, <laughs> I like this because, you know, it's it, you could have like a monolithic villain where it's like, he's the head of the bad guys. The bad guys fight Blade. But this tells you, like, even amongst the bad guys, there is, like, dissension in the ranks. And he is this, you know, wild card. Whereas, yeah. you know, maybe if he wasn't doing stuff, there might be a little more of a balance between Blade and them. That You know, like, we can handle this shit. Um, you know, you're, you are disrupting things in a way that is going to make them much, much worse. Yeah. And there's... It, there's there's power and status at work here, and it gives Deacon an agenda. It gives him a point of view. It gives him something to strive for. Whereas you know, which I think always makes for a much more compelling villain. If they you know want something beyond just killing the hero or blowing up the moon or whatever the case may be, you know, here and you know, it's not just like you know taking over the world and conquering humans to turn them into cattle it's really about proving himself and really about uh proving these older generation power structure wrong about him and his ilk uh he comes into it and it's a very sort of that like turn of turn of the century turn of the millennium sort of notion uh and a lot of uh action films of this time sci-fi fantasy films of this time both for heroes and villains and anti-heroes is that theme of youth versus age of that kind of rebellious mentality it almost immediately especially as a younger audience who are the ones going in to see this it puts us a little more in his camp. Of course we're going to root for Blade. Of course we're going to root for the human race to not be turned into cattle. But we see this kind of rock star vampire who's having to deal with these like stuffy uh, 
Euro aristocracy. This is the way things are done, Deacon. You should be more respectful of your elders. And we're like, yeah, fuck you, man. You know, let's <laughs> root for SLC Punk here, man. <laughs> like, he's just... It, it puts us in his corner a little bit. And wanting to see him and the uh, the ranks that uh, we see sort of fallen behind him of a really cool, sexy, fashionable vampires all hanging out and having orgies and blood raves and whatnot. It's like, this is fun. This is what, this is the hedonism that makes vampirism look appealing uh, from the outside. You know, no, we're not going to root for this guy, but it puts us a little more in his corner. Uh, And... It's it's a very common theme of that era, um, but they pull it off really, really well here. And, you know, it's that kind of shadowy secret society behind the scenes, manipulating things from behind. That's another very common theme of uh, this era of media, uh, because moving into the new millennium, that there was that kind of sense of... Like, who's really pulling the strings? Who's really controlling all the conspiracies? Which we've since seen kind of spiral out of control into its own kind of madness in our current culture that expends, extends way beyond media. But uh, here in this time and now, you know, it made for kind of fun movie tropes. And I like the trope of, like we said, the, the, the sub-villain who is in fact the real villain because... They are, you know, uh, a wild card. You know, they they are, you know, they've got ambitions that are unwise. Um, you know, they, they've got the drive to do it, right? Yeah. Um, and that and that's like, you know, you, we should also understand that, like, when the older, wiser villains are like, "Hey, man, we've got a good thing going. What are you doing?" That like, we should be afraid of the chaos that this guy is going to create because he's you know, a loose cannon. Um. So we we uh, we cut to back to Blade. He's showing up at a store. We understand that he's a week early for something, um, and we he's getting buying medication. And we hear that he's building a, a resistance to the serum. So it's enough to to give us the understanding that whatever this medication is that he needs, he ran out of it early. Like he's, he needs this stuff, and he is uh, it's getting whatever this is is getting worse. And we'll find out pretty soon what his deal is. Uh, so we go back yeah. to Karen. She, uh, she wakes up. She feels her neck. Uh, she finds the uh, the mother's driver's license, uh, Blade's mom's driver's license. She looks around at all the guns. This is you know the classic moment of the person going through the superheroes. You know this is like you know um, uh, Kim Basinger finding the Batcave. Right? We're going to see uh, you know where this hero makes his nest and what's in there. And she sees in particular Blade's sword, and it has this cool feature. Where if, if someone who's not blade touches it, these blades, these smaller blades, pop out of the hilt, uh, and that's going to come back in a big bad way later. And uh, she hears Whistler, and we get to learn a little more. They, she now has a little more interaction with Whistler. Uh, we find out Karen's a hematologist, a blood specialist, and um, now we're starting to find out what this medication is. We, we basically learn that Blade 
you know, because he's the good guy, doesn't want to feed on humans, but he's a vampire, so he needs he needs blood. So this serum is like a substitute that's kind of holding him off, and it's you know losing its potency over time. It's it's uh, the methadone for uh, for yeah. his blood addiction. It's and you know, and we're not you know they don't get too heavy into the science or the minutia of it. It's you know very clearly laid out. Um, you know, serum, that's a, that's a word. That's a word that we all know. And it's, you know, uh, and it's all the word that, you know, we really need to know. It's, it's not necessarily the, it's the phlebotinum of this sort of saying, it's just like, you know, yeah, he needs the thing to, so that he doesn't do, go fully bad. Um, which is to my knowledge. It could be MacGuffin-y. Yeah. And was never really a part of, I think, even once they kind of went back and uh, retconned Blade into, in the comics, into being uh, a Dompier, um, that there wasn't really a whole lot of, uh, like, urgency given to, like, him needing to feed. You know, it was seen, the, you know, him having all the strengths and none of the weaknesses, the thirst for blood was seen as one of the weaknesses. So he never really had to deal with it all that much. And so one of the, uh, I think, uh, innovations of the film is really giving him that, you know, kind of what we were talking about in the uh, X-Men episode of having uh, the power is also a curse. Like he does get all of these strengths and can walk in the sun and, you know, not be vulnerable to any of these things, but he's still susceptible to, this thirst, this hunger, this driving thing that like, and because we immediately established like, Hey, you're building up a resistance to this stuff. Now, both he and Karen are on parallel ticking clocks. Like they're running out of time. She's, you know, like they said, she's 50, 50 might still turn fully uh, into a vampire. He is, literally 50-50 a vampire and is running out of time to give in to those urges. Um, which is why I think it's such a cool and powerful moment later on in the film that like kind of the emotional climax in a lot of ways of the film is not only him having to give into that urge to save himself and thus all of us, it's her making that sacrifice of, you know, we've been fighting this urge this whole time. Now I'm going to give myself so that you can give into it to give you the strength to then go and save everyone. It's like a deeply, it's a very intense and, you know, like most vampire stories of the era, deeply erotic scene. I know we're not to it yet, but the fact that we kind of established both of their personal stakes this early on, and it culminates, I think in that, uh, kind of climactic moment between the two of them uh towards the end of the film is just really good stuff like again it's the kind of stuff that like you may not necessarily need especially for you know just action horror like you know hey we're gonna go have a fun time but it makes the film resonate on a different level we've established both of their emotional stakes and then we see them culminate not in a realization of those wants, of those needs, but in a subversion of them, that they both make this sacrifice of what they've been struggling against for, not only for each other, but for a greater good, which is really the heroic element in any superhero story. 
Yeah, and I think giving Blade this, you know, they, they treat it like it's an addiction. Yeah. Um, and as you said, methadone is, is not a bad comparison. Um, and, and it gives him, you know, we, we want our heroes to have to make a bit of a sacrifice. And for him, it's, you know, it's showing he's constantly having to battle against this thing, uh, this, you know, this hunger to do what's right. And it, it helps give him, you know, again, if it's, it's sort of an, a prolonged to save the cat moment you know, of him you know, constantly saying, like, no, I, I, I can't, even though I technically need blood to live, because I think they say later vampires don't make hemoglobin anymore, so they need to get it from, that's why they drink blood, to get it from somewhere else. Right. Um, and I, I they never explain why he can't just go to a blood bank, you know, and just get that, uh, or take it from an animal. But regardless, you know, um, the movie is relying on us. You know, vampire lore is ubiquitous. We've all, you know, Dracula was so popular that, like, we all know the rules of vampires. They can't go in the sun. You know, you stake them in the heart and they die. They, you know, they can't be around garlic, silver bullet, all of that stuff, like vampire mythology. It's like, yeah, that's preloaded to the point where in this next scene, we get Whistler doing this exposition dump. And he explains, yeah, vampires are alerted to all this stuff. Blade's not. Um... And he tells her, you know, get out of town. There's a war coming or going on between the vampires. You need to get out of here. We're doing our best to kind of tamp things down, but the vampires own the police. Uh, you know, you should get out of here. He gives her vampire mace, which is, you know, great. Got some vampire repellent. Uh, and tells her, you know, get a gun. And if she starts showing signs of vampir- vampirism, she should use it on herself. Uh, you know, great way to kind of, you know, again, yeah, set out the stakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and now we're about to get some exposition about the stakes on the villain side again, because after this quick montage of you know sun-drenched driving, we go to Vampire Lord Gitano in a server room, and this tells you the vampires are also high tech, like they've got access, you know, they they have an IT guy <laughs> has to maintain all these systems, uh, and he tells Frost to stay out of the archives. Um, he's he's trying to translate some kind of ancient texts. He's just sitting there listening to techno music. Um, and the, he and Gitano have this kind of bro stare off, uh, and uh, he goes back to his translating and techno music. And we'll we'll eventually sort of see what he's working on. But I guess these these ancient vampire runes unlock a, a model of a of this giant piece of architecture we're going to see later. This it's the vampire version of the room. contact machine. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's like, yes that's a great uh, yes that's exactly what it is it's like these these if you decode this ancient text uh it will show you how to build this thing or really where to find it i think I, my impression is this is a pre-existing thing they didn't build it they found it yeah but I, um, like there are things that they yeah. need to because there are certainly once we actually get into it and see the mechanisms and everything uh a lot of it is kind of you know ancient ruiny kind of stuff but some of it is very clearly newer higher tech stuff that they've installed to sort of if not fi- uh finish the device then uh then enhance it uh also real real quick just uh because um he he is a very uh renowned actor that uh they managed to get for this role uh in uh, uh Hentano Dragonetti uh Udo Kier uh the German actor um who's popped up in so 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 many films and uh and to get him for this um i don't think a lot of uh late 90s uh action movie fans were probably going to uh immediately go oh udo care but like 
it's uh, to me it kind of feels like uh, a pretty good get uh, right up there with Christofferson of like you know oh they actually like went and got some talent for this <laughs> like he's one of those guys is like you think a character actor is like a Dylan Baker where it's just like yeah man I've seen that guy's face in a million things and I don't know his name you know he's just you know there's just actors like that who are just around and you go oh yeah yeah I know I you know I I can pull his face out of the file but not his name. Yeah, um, yeah, he's definitely been around, and he's great in this. You know, he's he's that perfect kind of like restrained Eastern European performance. He's very concerned, but then he like does slap the shit out of the uh, Stephen Dorff, you know, trying to let you know he's in charge. Um, it's and I always a, it's a kind nice of moment. felt like we were we were talking a little bit before about like the hierarchy and how uh, Deacon fits into it, and I don't. I don't think it ever gets like firmly established, but there was something in the performance. I I know that uh, Deacon wasn't, uh, you know, they say that he's not a, uh, a born vampire. Um, But like, there's, there's something very like disappointed father about, uh, about Kitano, uh, his interactions with Deacon. So like, I wonder if he, like sired deacon or if he had been like i just like i don't know it feels like there's some like missing piece of the lore some like troubled bit of backstory between the two of them and maybe that's just like an element that they decided to give it to like enrich that dynamic you know maybe they decided to do that as actors maybe they did that as some kind of shared backstory that wasn't in the script but it just it kind of comes across in all their scenes together that it's not just this like uh, disgruntled employee uh, getting fed up with his boss. There is something more personal at stake, it feels like, in a lot of that. Especially with this kind of slap between the two of them. That's... It's such a violent but dismissive gesture at the same time. And It says I have no respect for you. Yeah. You know, I mean, clearly. But, like, he's coming down and talking to him. And he's always, like, you know, it's this kind of, like, you know, you need to get in line. You need to get in line. And it would just be so easy just to play that as, like, you know, oh, you know, you're the older generation. I'm the younger. And, uh, you know, I'm going to replace you and have it just be that. But there's, like, there's some other element to the dynamic that, like, never gets spoken textually. But feels very – I'll tell you what it reminds me of is uh, the movie Rob Roy the Liam Neeson film, Um, Tim Roth's character, one of the great cinematic villains. Um, We've come to find out uh, by the end of the film that uh, John Hurt's uh, nobleman character uh, is actually uh, his father. He's, you know, established early on as a bastard and, you know, is carrying this uh, locket portrait of his mother. And then at the end, you kind of get this little sense that uh, he was, in fact... Uh, this guy's father and like that he didn't know that and only after his death does like john hurt really put the pieces together that's like kind of the vibe i get here clearly not you know to that same extent and on those kind of levels but there's just this like shared history something more personal something more deeply about just and maybe it's just in the way that they play it but i every time i watch it i get just that like that little bit of sense and they never say it, which almost makes it cooler. But like, I wonder, 
like just on the production end. If that was in, if that was in Norrington's mind and he gave it to them as a note, if it was, you know, the two of them getting together and rehearse the scene together, like, you know, Hey, what if we gave it this? Or, you know, if it's, you know, Goyer script says, you know, just like, you know, Oh, Hey, by the way, he's his dad. And like, I'm never going to say it, but play it like this. Like on what level does it come across? Or is that just entirely my inference into the text? Um, I'll tell you what I think it is. Uh, the, we didn't talk about this in the production, but the original cut of this movie was like two and a half hours long. Right. And uh, test audiences hated it. And so they did a whole bunch of, I don't know, reshoots and cuts and things. So I, 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 you know, the fact that you feel like there's this piece missing, I wonder if that's literally the case. Yeah, maybe in some of the deleted material. It might, it might well be. And I think it still makes it, you know, because the movie moves at a good clip. And I think definitely what we were kind of alluding to before the original uh, ending, I think they definitely made some some very wise choices uh, in the subsequent cuts of the film. Um, But like that this element is still there. It just, it gives it just a little more, it pluses it just like that little bit more. And maybe that's just me bringing more to it than is there, but I really enjoy it. Yeah, I, I, there, like, like you said, I think it's it's good to have these textures amongst your villains as opposed to just like, yep, one bad big bad guy gives orders to other smaller bad guys and they yeah. go do it, you know. All right, so Blade uh, drops off Karen in the nice part of town, I say jokingly, uh, and <laughs> uh, she gets in an elevator uh, and she notices that some of the people in the elevator have these rune tattoos, which we've been told are, you know, uh, like almost cattle brands for the vampires um, that lets you know like what clan they belong to, things like that. Uh, they follow her. She grabs her mace to, to hit them with it. But when she turns around, they're gone. She goes back into her apartment. There's no messages for her. She's packing up and a police officer uh, comes in, uh, named Krieger comes in on her for a, what he says is a routine check. Uh, she said he says that uh, her, this Curtis, the um, what we call discount Nathan Fillion, uh, died. She then maces the cop, who just is basically uh, we quickly realize he's not a vampire because nothing bad happens to him. Right, uh, and we find out he's a familiar. Uh, after she gets back to uh, to Blade, uh, this is he's uh, this is a different use of the term familiar. Usually in folklore, a familiar is like a little animal that hangs around a witch, like you know the witch's black cat is you know more than just a literal cat. Like it's a a spirit that takes the form of a cat and helps the the witch. This though, these are like wannabes. These are like vampire fanboys. Yeah, it's and it's your interesting idea. It's your classic Renfield. It's uh, you know, just sort of writ large uh, across society that you know you Dracula had you know this one bug eaten familiar, and these tribes of vampires have them seeded throughout human society. Um, that was. Always, and I, I was trying to remember if they actually, if there was a term in uh, in either the original Dracula novel or any of the subsequent adaptations that refer to uh, Renfield as as a familiar or as if there's like a particular jargon. I like that they give it 
a name here. Uh, but I was trying to remember, like you say, you know, in, in folklore, it definitely has that more animalistic uh, kind of connotation with uh, with witches and warlocks. Um, but the fact that they kind of appropriate it uh, for use here, I was like, is this an original use? Was this in Dragon? Because there is, I mean, it's certainly drawing on that tradition uh, of Renfield. Um, but I couldn't remember if they had ever uh, called him that or... A, a particular other term if, if stoker had his own term for that kind of uh person who had not been turned but uh perhaps ensorcelled or charmed by uh the vampire's power and charisma yeah i you know i this this really just speaks to something about villains where you know it's like how do villains get people to follow them if they're so evil and it's like no, there's people that are just you know ensorcelled by the that you know the power they want to be close to it they you know they are attracted to that and that's what this guy is right the, all of these familiar people are you know they they want to be on what they see as the winning team yeah i mean you know not to <laughs> draw too many real world parallels, but I think you can I see. Was say, just there's kind certainly of, some, uh, especially the day just, we're recording this on. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> I'm looking at my uh, my calendar date right now. Oh, look! It's January sixth today. It's January sixth while we're parallels. recording this. Uh, yes, that is true. Um, and, and you know, within our own country, you know, there is a, um, you know, even beyond that sort of um, the uh, the the orange skull and his ilk. Uh, we've certainly had any number of uh, cult of personality victims uh, in this country. And you look globally at the number of movies throughout history of any number of just powerful, charismatic people who, you know, maybe aren't good and don't have the best uh, intentions for anyone. People vote against their interest every day in this country and in other countries. People join the fascist movements, terrorist movements, people join criminal uh, gangs and uh, religious cults because, you know, the, the promise of power or just the allure of, you know, just even writ on the much smaller scale, uh, you know, every con man operates on the principle of, you know, charming their marks uh, and gaining their confidence that way. And it's it's really no different trying to you know fleece someone out of uh, you know an inheritance or uh, trying to get them to uh, overthrow a democratically and free and fair election. Um, it's the same principle. Or having uh, human servants in a vampire underworld. It's all the same principle at stake. It's that you know people are drawn to. You know power and they're drawn to confidence and you know even when it's dangerous for them even when it's not good for them like krieger does not end well uh <laughs> in this world he is not rewarded for his service <laughs> in any material way um but all the same he and he has to know that he has to know that. These are vampires. They are monsters. They are people eaters. And on the off chance that maybe 
he could get uh, some kind of taste of that power, some taste of that. It's, you know, it's every day, you know, people uh, who have no chance of ever becoming uh, a millionaire, let alone a billionaire, vote their own interests out in favor of actual millionaires and billionaires because they're sold on the the allure and the promise that maybe they could have some kind of taste that some of that vampire blood magic might trickle down to them and you know bless them with this uh undead majesty um and really all you wind up getting is uh your throat ripped out and being tossed out into an infinity pool Uh, so let me um, bring this back down to earth for a little bit. Sure. Uh, get back into it. So, uh, so uh, Karen says, you know, you, you use me as bait, and he says, and Blade of course says, get over it, which is nice. <laughs> um, but he lets us know that you know again the vamp, the, what the uh, the runes mean, and that he was hoping to lure out this guy who would lead her, lead him to Frost because he's got Frost's brand on him. And uh, we we get to this scene with the trunk full of blood. <laughs> and, um, you know, Blade says, where were you taking this? Uh, and I believe we, I, in my notes, it just says, fuck me, fuck this. Hopefully you can help me uh, remember the, the context here. Um, I remember him, he, he asked him about it, and then he just, like, he keeps, like, smashing his head uh, into... Um, yes. Is it the side of the the car or like he just keeps he just just keeps brutalizing this guy and you know deservedly so he's he's not a good guy he deserves to have his you know face smashed in but and of course yeah he you know just immediately as he's you know grabbing his nose and you know it's not it's not a fun thing to have your nose broken but you know like the slightest contact when uh, it is can be agony so then having it like Rebro being hit just as hard in the same spot like no it's 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 not fun and he has he has certainly earned uh the multiple uh face smashings um but uh it, it is showing that you know like blade uh blade is no boy scout he no. is even with know, another human here yeah, there aren't a lot of lines for him. You know, yeah, he will use her as bait. Yeah, he will bash this guy's face in. It doesn't matter that they're both human. You know, he's he sees himself as a soldier in a war. Um, and that sort of extremism, to a certain extent, that kind of zeal we see in him and Whistler... Uh, it kind of serves as a really excellent foil for Deacon uh, and his faction who are, you know, not necessarily, you know, zealots or true believers, but they go about trying to, you know, raise a God. They go searching through ancient texts and looking for these rituals. Uh, so there is kind of that sort of parallel between this, you know, religious fervor between the two of them and what, you're willing to do and what lines you're willing to cross and really what makes blade more of an anti-hero than a straight up hero. You know, it's not about, you know, like necessarily saving her. He'd have left her to die if she hadn't reminded him of his mother and that he's, you know, still kind of 
coping with uh, the, the immediate postnatal trauma of his own origins. Um, yeah, he'd have absolutely left her to die. As I'm sure he's left any number of people. Uh, you know, just victims or it's like, you know, oh, you got bit, bang, you're dead. You know, it's like, you know, there's very few lines. And part of the emotional journey of this for him is realizing that there is that kind of, there are those lines and there are people that are worth fighting for. It's not just about the war. It has to be about the people that you're fighting for as well. Um, but here we just get really badass sequences of him bashing cops faces in, which feels weirdly Good. satisfying on certain levels of um, <laughs> just watching this uh, really badass black man just like bash in uh, a cop's face and know that he's completely in the right to do so. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> not to get us off on another Again, tangent, playing, but there's, oh, there's just a, something, well, it's, there's something satisfying about that. Well, again, this is one of those things that like it feels like they borrowed a, a an element of a black exploitation movie, yeah. Um, without you know really bringing along all the other things with it, um, but that worldview you mentioned, like he says to Carries is to survive, you have to pull the trigger, right? That's how he sees things. Um, and so we, we move on to this stakeout where they said you know, the the Krieger stakeout. got away. We're going to use a stakeout, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on a stakeout. Uh, How many mentions of steak of can we work into this show? One. One mention <laughs> of steak. Ah, ah, ah. Two. Two <sighs> mentions of steak. <laughs> I have no shame about this at all. I think this is this is good audio. Uh, so I love it. Uh, I love he, it. Hey, um, folks, if you, you're yeah. at home and you're listening to this, uh, keep count of uh, the number of steak puns we make over the course of this, both before this point and moving in. And if you will tweet us with, <laughs> with the answer. Tweet at go to the Marvels. Uh, yeah, send us that. So, um, we they, will they shout you out guy. in a future episode. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so they, they follow Krieger into this, you know, yet another vampire club. And they, uh, you know, it's, it's techno time. Blade punches this guy, pursues him into the kitchen, and basically torches him to find the entrance to what's really behind this place. And he says, it's in the freezer. And to which he responds, tell Frost it's open season on suckheads. <laughs> and I love that because it's like, it's a slur for vampires. That we've, I don't think it appears anywhere else in the movie, but he says it as if it's like, yeah, that's a word we all know. Yeah, that's that's a word that is spoken in that world. That is. <laughs> it's also it almost sounds like suckas, you know, like it's it's yeah. so close to that. Like it's it's really a great, well, you know, again, uh, it's just a great line reading from Snipes. Like because he just he shifts gears so well between like I'm a you know scratchy voice badass who says almost nothing, and then this like pure comedy line. Yeah, uh, any one of those actors, little quips, I, I uh, always imagine, like, those, those are the lines that I am convinced were uh, Snipes' ad-libs on the day. That he's just like, I should say something here. About, it's like, what if, uh, what if I call it, like, open season on suckheads? Uh, okay, yeah, give, give me a take of that. Okay, I'm going to give you every take with that. <laughs> 
And it's great. Yeah, I mean, it like absolutely. it makes the movie. It really yeah. like fleshes out the character. I think it's great. Again, you need this comic element, and it can't all just come from Whistler. Like you, you need this from Blade. Um, not that every comic book hero needs to be a quip machine. Certainly, you know, Batman isn't, and that works okay. Um, but you, you still, you know, with a movie this dark, you gotta pepper in this lighter tone when you can, because otherwise, the whole thing would feel too heavy. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's really good, and it does, and it gives him dimension. It never feels like, to me, at the very least, like it never feels overly jarring. Like these just feel like different aspects of his personality. That like that he can be this kind of, you know, or maybe he even just like wants to be this stoic cipher of a hero who you know like swoops in silently and uh you know disappears just as quickly and you weren't even sure he's there and then sometimes like he just he can't help himself and he's got to like you know just have a little attitude and just like indulge himself a little bit uh that these are two very different traditions of uh of heroes and media and culture and you feel like Blades probably watched a lot of movies and probably read a lot of comics and uh, isn't entirely sure which one. And so he becomes both. Uh, and I think it works really well and it just really does give him that. It gives us the excuse and the the permission to laugh and not take it too seriously. And, you know, it makes him a little more human, which draws us into him a little bit more. We're not just like, oh, he's the hero, so we're following him through. It's like... No, this dude's got like <laughs> this dude's got jokes, so uh, that means I can you know like I can root for him just right off the bat. He's not just like you know he's not the Terminator, you know. We, we, you yeah. have to find that you know human element uh, in in every hero, in every villain too. We talk about you know the the reason that we can get behind Deacon is he's given these you know, human elements. He's given an agenda. He's given wants. He's given conflict. He's given dimension. And Blade is the same way, you know, coming at it from the opposite angle. Um, so giving him these moments to just kind of have, to have fun himself. It's not just Snipes having fun on the day. It's, you know, Blade taking a little relish and uh, and going out and being on the, the warpath. Which also makes him a little more dangerous that, you know, it's like, oh, you maybe enjoy this a little too much. Like we can, like, which we can relate to. And we know he's got that addictive personality we've already talked about with, you know, drinking the blood. Like, is there a point where this becomes you're enjoying it too much? Um, but, you know, it also just gives us a really great line to, you know, laugh at and be like, yeah, he called him a suckhead. That's awesome. <laughs> you put it on a t-shirt. You know, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, exactly. <laughs> uh, so they, they go down into this into the archives. Uh, we cut over to this rooftop party that is like Frost's party, but he's not actually at the party. He's still uh, working on translating this thing, which finally says it's complete. And we see, you know, this CGI model, like we talked about, of this cylindrical uh, structure. And at the bottom, there's a bunch of figures, each one with a different glyph, and there's one prominently in the middle. Uh, Krieger comes to meet Frost. Uh, Donal Logue is there. He's looking a little better. Uh, and the cop says, hey, Blade was waiting, and he was using the girl as bait. At this point, Frost eats him. Uh, and then 
It's just showing that, like, what is the point of having any loyalty to these vampires? Like, they view you as food. There's yeah. no reason. Um, and then he, he licks a nearby lady, because uh, that's what he does. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, then into the pool where there's, like, a little yellow ducky. And he, he tells Donalogue he wants Blade alive. Um, and this lady who he licks, this is the, uh, that lady in white, right? Which is usually yeah. wearing white. Yeah. I can't remember this character's name. Um, she's, I don't she's think it's ever said. Like, she's credited yeah. as Mercury, but I don't think it's ever said in the movie. She, but she's like the, which I found really fun because the only thing we really know about her other than like she lets Frost lick her uh is that she's super fast every you know scene we have in her she's like you know it's that kind of zooming and then finding out you know she's named mercury the you know the roman speedster god um it's just funny to me i just like that and i'm like why didn't yeah. you name her like and this is the kind of thing that like and I, I like that uh del toro gets into it a little bit more in the second one um and you almost wish and maybe wonder if that you know two and a half hour version maybe allowed for a little bit more of this that like there's an interesting kind of entourage around Deacon beyond just Quinn that, you know, it's like, you've got the, you know, you've got his, you know, kind of super fast, uh, I assume lover. Uh, you've got the, you know, really cool, uh, you know, kid vampire who does like the karate and stuff that we you know run into later. And just like all the ones in the scenes that uh, part of, uh, Frost's army, and you know when when they're in the archives, or when we're at the 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 ritual later on, these they're just sort of they fade into the background, but they all like look really cool, and they're all sort of a few of them are sort of given special abilities, and but aren't really even like named. We don't dwell on them too much, and you know which you don't want to necessarily you know do that that can just slow the pace of a movie down real quick but at the same time it like it gives you that little but like you know i want to know more about that like i want to see some like give me give me a disney plus series about these vampires hanging yeah, out they definitely like, yeah they're they're underwritten for sure definitely this yeah. one mercury is um she's kind of i think they're relying on the fact that she's just kind of a trope yeah. Of like athletic build, blonde, European, scary, fanatical villain lady. Like, I feel like you get characters like this in a bunch of movies around this era. I feel like there's one of these in like Triple X yeah. and stuff like that. You know, like, this is definitely a type. And we don't necessarily need to know more about her, except I do like that she is very fierce and clearly some kind of a fanatic. Um, I think that works. And we'll get more of her later. Yeah. Um, but for now, um, we we go to Blade. This is a really neat scene. I like this scene. So they go down to the archives and they meet Pearl, <laughs> uh, the record keeper. And Pearl is a vampire who must weigh, I don't know, 900 pounds. Uh, you know, he's just presented as this just blob yeah. uh, who's not even wearing clothes. Like, he's just, he's just this, you know, pile of flesh. Think uh, the... Um, uh, gluttony scene from seven right it's a little like that and um we we see frost you know is on like a screen uh that is you know there's like tv screens in this room and one of them lights up with frost on it saying you know he wants blade at, at which point blade tortures pearl uh with a uv light 
and he's trying to find out what this CG thing that was also on the screen now. They, he's seen this cylinder. And he's saying, you know, what is that? And the Pearl eventually reveals this is a piece of something, the, the prophecy, and he says La Magra is coming. Uh, they, they, Frost intends to awaken the blood god, and she leaves Karen there to watch him and says, you know, burn him if he moves. She burns him within an inch of his life. Uh, and when she says, well, he moved. He moved. Um, he Do moved. you get the uh, sense so couple, at all, like, um, with the Pearl character, I, I, I sometimes get this kind of sense that the highly uh, overweight, socially awkward, uh, dwelling in the basement, surrounded by all the screens, uh, being the kind of database, but also, like, watching all of these things... Um, is this a slight uh, commentary or satire, do you think, on, um, and, and very early on in its uh, inception of uh, internet fan culture? That this is like meant to be like, and maybe it's just being from Austin. Maybe it's, you know, that, you know, I was, I was on Ain't It Cool News a lot, you know, back in the day when it first started out. <laughs> but as soon as this character popped up on screen, the very first thing that popped into my head um was Harry Knowles. Harry Knowles, um, who of course wound up to be um, a <laughs> way worse than Pearl, <laughs> or probably most <laughs> vampires. Um, but uh, yeah, I just like every time I watch it, I'm just kind of like, I feel like this is a very broadly drawn kind of maybe tongue in cheek, maybe like you know winking at the fans, but also sort of. Uh, putting the dagger between the ribs just a little bit. Um, like it, it, it feels very, uh, intentional. We'd never see another vampire like Pearl, at least in this movie. And it's not really given like a reason for there to be this, uh, hugely obese, uh, kind of vampire. Uh, I think it's a, it's a cool look. It's a grotesque look. It's like we were talking about before, like, great job on the the practical aesthetics but like the reason behind it they're just it feels like i'm just kind of like you have a you know massively overweight very pale uh basement dweller whose entire purpose is uh collecting data and watching screens this feels intentional to me and i don't know if I'm alone in that or if I'm just like reading way too much into it. No, he does have the podcaster's body type. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not Ms. Worst. Uh, do not look up pictures <laughs> of us online. Uh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to be fair, combined, we don't weigh as much as this guy. It's true. Um, it's true. But, and, and no body shaming, of course. But No, of course. The, you know, you do you. And, you know, well, Love, love you all kinds of shapes and sizes, but you know, it sure. just, it definitely feels a little like pointed, uh, on, on the filmmaker's part. <laughs> it's not, it's not, not that for sure. <laughs> there's definitely a little of that in there. Um, but this character, I mean, this is a really, yeah, you're right. There's a little bit of like, well, what is he doing here? Why is he like this? You know, how would, if he has to feed on blood, does someone have to like bring it to him? Like, how does a vampire even get like this? It's not important because I think it just goes to one of those rule of cool things. Like, oh, this is neat. Like, what a, you know, what an interesting detour into the world of vampires this is. Yeah. Uh, so I, I really like, again, I like the scene. I think the character is is very funny. 
Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, because he's kind of also like, you also understand, like, he's harmless. Like, what's he going to do? Like, he can't do anything to Blade. He, he probably can't move. Yeah, so he's, no, it's like, know, yeah, as vampires go, it's like. I also want to know, like, what is the, what, like, does, is there, like, high fat content blood that, like, you have to consume to get I mean, this? It like, if all blood. you're eating is blood. <laughs> Like is that <laughs> like I, I, I don't know, know. his cholesterol's like... got to be awful, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> got to get that high cholesterol. We should talk blood. about <laughs> yeah. We should talk about La Magra here because this is our first drop yes. of La Magra, uh, which is now this is our this is our ticking clock for the movie is that we understand now Deacon wants to summon La Magra, the blood god. Uh, La Magra, of course, is the um, the agency that deals with vampire immigration, and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they, they, this is this is. A, I mean, the, I, I had forgotten about this. You know, again, I, I guess I had forgotten most of this movie because I've only seen it once a long time ago. And so it was like the blood god is coming. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm in. Tell me more about this blood god. That sounds awesome. Those are two words that work great together for horror. Um, and I love. By the way, again, it's very funny that like Karen burns the shit out of him because again, he's posed no threat. He's hurt nobody. You know, she's just like a just abusing this vampire for you know just because yeah she can't um, fight anyway, like an actual vampire and these things have been you know terrorizing her and everything so now it's like you know okay i'm gonna get you know i'm gonna get a little bit of payback in this moment i'm gonna be like just the the littlest bit of petty that i can be and take out the fact that my life has been ruined and nearly ended on a few occasions by uh these as uh mr brooks is uh fond of saying suckheads yeah. Uh, so they blow open a door, you know, behind, sort of behind him, uh, you know, go, going deeper into this complex. And we find that there's pages from the book of the vampire Bible. Uh, you know, so again, building on that vampire culture, right? There's like yeah. scrolls and stuff. Which is, there's a uh, blood awesome. god, there must be a vampire Bible. Yes, there's a vampire book of revelations that would talk about the coming of the, the blood god. Uh, yes. So Blade hears something. There's like a young girl, uh, and Donal Logue shows up. And at first we're like, "Oh, what's the deal with this girl?" Then the girl kicks real hard, and we yeah. get some fisticuffs, and we get some crazy kung fu punching sounds in this. I, I noted the foley here is like, this is super like, whoosh, very very like you know seventies kung fu sounds. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, they lean into it hard. It's great. And uh, we get, stay with me, sweetness. That's a, a great line here. <laughs> and uh, a silver stake through the shoulder as he, he takes out these these folks. Uh, again, he, he keeps going. He's uh, the, the fight is getting more and more intense. And I love that Whistler then comes in. Is it, uh, was it Catchy Fuckers at a Bad Time? <laughs> and ventilates everyone. Just, you know, shooting everywhere. Uh not much to say other than this is a lot of fun combat. Like when the when the combat gets kind of you know Hong Kong fooey, um, it's really good. Like it, it, there's definitely I don't know if they actually hired, um, you know martial arts, uh, you know martial art choreography people. Like you know, it's not quite Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but there's a little of that in here. Yeah, and no, it's it's, it's cool. still like, got that, that cool little like bit of. Like you were saying, you know, it's a throwback. You know, if Blade is drawn out of this kind of 
both B movie horror and kind of black exploitation era, you know, that same era gave us uh, the rise of uh, kung fu cinema and the kind of uh, for lack of a better term, the the kind of the the chopsaki kind of subgenre of film with you know the heavy foley and the just like real dynamic you know like you know kick and like and i don't know the uh you know i I referenced her earlier when we were talking about uh the mercury character but you know this this young vampire who's really fucking good at you know at karate or kung fu or whatever the hell she's you know doing there she's so much she's so interesting to watch and like we see we've seen little glimpses of her up to this point we haven't known what her deal is and then like we get this reveal. She kicks ass. And like, it's only for this moment. But I'm sitting there being like, and she's so just visually interesting. And there's like, it's like, you, okay, you're young. So you were clearly turned young. And like, did you know Kung Fu before you became a vampire? Or like, just, there's so much going on there. And there's such like a deeper story that like, I would love to dig into and this is why you know like i love comics and i love uh tv series and kind of serialized nature and why i like the mcu so much uh, like uh where you get into you know you can follow characters across all of this and you're like really you know kind of like okay we only got a glimpse of this them in this one but we're gonna like you know over time we're gonna find out so much more about them these kind of like little side characters who uh you know at this point uh in all cinema, let alone, you know, superhero cinema, uh, really don't, you, they're just kind of like, oh, well, that was a cool character. Oh, I really enjoyed that scene. And you never really see him again. It's fun eye candy for a moment. Um, but, like, I want to know so much more about this girl and, like, what is going on with her and what is her deal. She kicks so much ass in this scene. And then, yeah, it's everyone coming in. Everyone kicking ass, shooting guns, shooting silver spikes, breaking glass cases, destroying religious scripture, dealing out one-liners, dropping F-bombs. It's glorious. Like, this is the showcase scene of the movie for me. Like, I love this scene so, so much. This is like this the is one the most I, that I would watch, like, in and of itself, independent of the rest of the film. Like, I would just watch this scene. Yeah, again, this is the most comic book action we get in yeah. this movie, I think. There are other action sequences, but this one is the most, like, you know, you know, this feels more like some of the, the comic book action scenes that would come in later things, like, say, you know, the Raimi Spider-Man stuff. Like, it's, you know, it, plus guns. But, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a bit more of a, like, a choreography to this uh, yeah. that makes it that way. Uh, so they escape into the subway. Um, Donald pursues them. They manage to ultimately get away. I'm just kind of yada yadaing through some of the. This is all action, so it's a little hard to describe. Yeah, it's a but, classic subway. Um, you know, kind of okay. So yeah, they do, we do have a subway scene. Never mind. <laughs> I said that there wasn't. They're not on the subway though. At least at this point. <laughs> so and there's a subway. Well, they eventually there, get so on the it's, it's it's fine. It's fine. And you get a little bit of like yeah. <laughs> um. We see uh, uh, Blade takes the injection of the blood substitute, and she asks, you know, are you one of them? And no, he's something else. And Whistler uh, explains, you know, hey, he found Blade on the streets at 13 years old where he was feeding on the homeless, which is like, oh, man. <laughs> like, you gotta, you really got to kick a guy when he's down. You, gotta, <laughs> you, 
you know, eat homeless people. Um, and he says, you know, he's playing, and he gives us the the explanation, the exposition uh, that his mother was bit while she was pregnant. That's why he is the way he is. The serum suppresses the thirst. His body's rejecting it. There's no cure. Uh, and he says, she asks, you know, why did, why are you in on this? You know, why are you on this anti-vampire team? And he says a vampire killed his whole family. And uh, that's a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, something, something is happening right now and Frost is at the center. Uh, Karen goes to talk to Blade, who's just sort of staring out into space. And he says he spent his whole life looking for the one who killed his mother and he can't rest until they're all gone. Uh, setting up what will come at the end of the movie uh, later with Frost. But, um, you know, again, we're, we're, we've got some time to kind of calm down now in this post-action sequence uh, moment to allow them to build character, uh, give us exposition, you know, what we need to transition into the next act of the movie. And uh, I think it's effective. I th- you know, I, th- I like the, the relationship between Karen and Blade because it's, it, you almost think it's going to be romantic, but they don't quite go there. It's something else. Yeah, and there's that's there's, kind of refreshing. There's a there's a link there between them, and I think, you know, the the most the closest it ever gets to any kind of like romantic or or sexual dynamic is the the scene I was referencing earlier towards the end where uh, she lets him uh, bite her, which the way it's filmed and presented is that like there's no two ways about it like that is an er- an erotic scene um kind of part of the interesting thing they are also linked through this you know kind of common struggle like we we were talking about before that there is this kind of 50 50 shot you know she could still turn she could not blade himself is 50 50 he's you know he's the daywalker. um there's also just a kind of interesting thing, and we get into it more. And I, I know that you know this hasn't been revealed at this point, but the fact that um, the reason he saves her is because she reminds him of his mother. His mother, we come to meet later, and there is certainly a shall we say. Freudian aspect to uh, some of their interactions. Uh, so there is kind of a weird psychosexual uh, element to, like, it's never really addressed. Like, they never, you know, confess their feelings for each other. They, you know, never, you know, sleep with each other or kiss. But there is this intimacy and this kind of shared tragedy between them that, uh, and I, I, I don't know if we've, uh, called her out directly yet or not, but uh, just to give um, proper credit, um, and I might uh, butcher the name, but uh, Nbushi Wright um, plays uh, Karen. Uh, and I can't remember seeing her in much else, uh, but I think she does a really solid job uh, in this film. And, you know, she comes in, she's got a very particular um set of plot functions to accomplish um but she does them we f- she feels like a fully emotionally realized character like 
you know, it doesn't feel mailed in. It's not just, hey, I'm the blood doctor who comes and tells you the blood things. Hey, I'm the girl who you have to explain things to. She is those things, but she's also like, like I said, like with Deacon and with Blade, she's got her own agenda. She's got her own kind of perspective. Her life has been derailed by the being sucked into this world. Um, and she plays it very well. Um, and yeah, I don't remember seeing her in much else, but I think she does a really good job in this movie. I think so too. You know, she is our point of view character mm-hmm. and she has to do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of the plot because of that. And uh, I think she does it effortlessly. I think, you know, she's, you know, they, they really seamlessly weave her into the movie um, to where she's almost the protagonist in a way more than Blade is. Because he already, you know, he knows what's going on. He is, um, you know, he's kind of fully formed already. And yeah, so for sure. I, I like what she does here. He's the hero. She's the protagonist, I think, to put yes. it in those kind of literary terms. All right, so um, Dona Logue and uh, the blonde Mer- uh, Mercury, right? Mercury. Yes. Uh, they're, you know, we're back at the at Villain Town, and they are blaming each other for what happened. Dona Logue is pissed because once again, Blade has taken off his hand. <laughs> and uh, again, just that great, you know, it, it doesn't. It's hard to translate into a podcast, but that running gag of him, like constantly, it's like ah, fuck. It's <laughs> you know, so you hurt me again. Good. It's so so good. It's and so great. deeply satisfying <laughs> every time it. And happens. so Dona Logue. Um, Frost again reiterates he wants Blade alive, um, and, and we'll find out why later. But basically, he is a a key ingredient for uh, summoning Lamagra, so he can't let Blade die. Uh, we get some vampire sexy time, and then we do this interesting thing. This is this like seaside kidnapping of one of the high council members, and they basically leave him there by the shore for the ocean or for, for the sunrise. I guess that means it must be on the East Coast, right? Sunrise is in the East, so they must be in some Eastern-facing place. Anyway, they um, uh, the he starts smoking with, as the sun rises, and he tells Frosty, you'll never be pure blood. And he says, well, you're too long in the tooth. And uh, they put on these <laughs> Daft Punk suits as, uh, <laughs> as uh, the guy disintegrates. I mean, that's immediately what I thought of is like, oh, they look like Daft Punk. Like, they're, you know... Full body suits with these weird helmets. Yeah, Daft Punk or uh, uh, Trinity's biker outfit in The Matrix. Just because yes, of the, just yeah, all, the, all, the, all the shiny you know, leather and whatnot. But yeah, and I just love the copious amounts of uh, sunscreen. <laughs> I can't imagine what a vampire's SPF must be. But... Yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine. It would basically have to be like pancake makeup to block out the sun so you don't die. Yeah. Uh, so Frost returns to the council and says he needs 12 volunteers. Um, and we get this scene where we get back to Whistler. He's got what's called the Book of, we find it's called the Book of Erebus that mentions uh, the Blood God and the Spirits of Twelve. And he's, he's a Whistler, you know, he's assigned to study this book and figure out what's going on. Karen, meanwhile, is making this anticoagulant serum that its purpose is to explode vampire heads uh which will again check off serum here yes <laughs> uh, we hear uh whistler does the the uh uh-oh i'm gonna die cough you know that we know as moviegoers means like he, i don't think he does the thing where he looks into a handkerchief and sees blood but 
when a character coughs like this in the movie, you know, like, oh, their their time on Earth is running out. He's got the uh, consumption. <laughs> yes, yes, he's he's got some kind of uh, 18th century disease. Uh, yes. So uh, he's going to die. Uh, Karen takes a bit of Blade's blood again to try and experiment on. Uh, and Whistler looks at Karen, and she's not looking great. He says, "We didn't catch it in time." He thinks she's got a day or two at most before she turns. Uh, again, all exposition stuff. Uh, we see Blade walking down the street, and he sees Frost with a little girl hostage. Uh, he's still got the makeup on. This is—I'm oh, sorry. This is a scene that I should mention. This is a scene in a park in broad daylight. Yeah. So this is the this is the this is our hero villain face off where he basically says, you know, uh, you should join, you know, join me, you know, turn to the dark side. We are not so different, uh, you and I. <laughs> yes, the, exactly. Uh, and he, you know, he says, you know, humans will never accept you. They're cattle. You know, my, my thesis is, you know, natural selection. You know, do, you might as well just join our team. You're really a vampire anyway. Uh, to which he, he tells uh, Blade says your mascara is running, which is a nice you know nod to this pancake stuff he has all over his face. Yeah. Um, Frost says he's offering a truce. And uh, Blade says, hey, I know about Lamagra. Um, Blade shoots at him. The, Frost dodges the bullets. And he throws the girl literally in front of a bus. And you know, so now Blade has the choice. Do I save this child from being flattened by a bus or do I go after Frost? Uh, and, of course, he saves her and tells her, go home. Uh, I like this scene. You know, I, I like, um, you know, get, they, need to, they needed to get these two into a, a, the same space to talk to each other before the climax of the movie. I th- you know, it, it's yeah. always weird when you have that, you know, where the villain meets the hero for the first time 10 minutes before the end of the movie. Right. Yeah. It's like, what are you even drawing from other than the fact it's like oh hero you are here nice to meet you i am villain like you know we're expected to draw upon you know shorthand and for you know a lot of like you know dumb fun action movies that can oftentimes be enough but you know here of course we're going to discover that there are some deeper personal stakes between the two of them there's another one for you uh there are things that they need to know about each other and that they need to be familiar with one another ahead of time. And it is, it's, it's a really well done scene. Um, I love that there is that sort of my, my vampire senses tingling of like blade, like just kind of through the crowd, just like through all of these people can just that we see frost through it all we see like that focus kind of come in sharply on him there's no reason in the world for you know blade to happen to notice uh this guy but it gives it that you know there is a connection between these two there is something otherworldly about them that you know yeah the, the you know what blade tells karen you know that you know there are two worlds there's the you know, the sunshine world and just everyone walking about, you know, clueless. And then the real world of, you know, everyone, this kind of war underneath. And this is the first kind of, we see the way those worlds maybe perceive each other or kind of exist when those filters kind of overlap. Um, And there's not, 
it's an emotionally tense scene and there's very little action right up until the end. It's just these two characters kind of taking each other's measure, squaring off. It's very well done. Um, and then, yeah, him sort of making the crack about uh, the makeup, uh, maybe a slightly emasculating line. Um, you know, like it's not your makeup is right. It's your mascara is right. <laughs> it's like... Um, and then, yeah, he throws the girl. And I think the implication to me, at the very least, kind of of what we know of Blade over the course of this, is that Blade at the beginning of this movie, I think, would have gone after Deacon. And would have just been like, you know, the little girl's casualty. Part of his journey to this point is, is that discovering people the people worth fighting for the people that you're fighting the war for. It's not just about killing suckheads. It's not just about, uh, this personal vendetta. It's about protecting the world. It's about protecting these people. And so the girl is the choice now. And it is that sort of late in the game, save the cat moment of, you know, there was, there was a personal reason. There was, you know, something that, called out to blade that caused him to want to save Karen. The fact that he, you know, saved, uh, you know, the blonde guy at the bloodbath was kind of incidental. The dude was just kind of there. Uh, just like the fact that he happened to live was okay. Um, but this is the first real moment we see of, I have to rescue an innocent. And he does it. It's like there's barely a moment of of hesitation and like and the effect like the slow motion it's very I don't know what it is about the way it's shot it feels very unlike other slow motion scenes that I've seen in other movies it's certainly the uh, the bullet time that we would get uh, in the Matrix uh, in the in the years to come um, the kind of the dodging the throwing action there's this. I don't know what they did. Like, technically speaking, I'm sure um, some of our uh, listeners who are more um, into the science of cinema and the the way things are shot and the way things are framed uh, that could explain it to me a lot more in depth. I'm sure I have friends that I could ask about it. I won't because I'll just forget the next time I talk to them, I'm sure. But there is something almost an ethereal quality, which I guess underlies the sort of otherworldly nature and kind of, and maybe that's it. It's just like the way it shot is meant to communicate. This is what vampire strength looks like in slow motion. We've seen it at full speed. We've seen it in these kind of more dynamic action sequences, seeing it in this time at this kind of frame rate. Uh, it just looks different. It feels different. It's kind of cool. And yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to me. Yeah, I think there's something gentle about it. It's, it's this touch of yeah. like, you know, I'm going to, you know, pluck you out of this thing, out of this peril. And, you know, in a way that's like, I'm a guardian angel as opposed to being like, I'm a you know, karate vampire. You know, um, And even the way that softer. like Deacon throws her has this almost like, there's no, it doesn't feel like a lot of heft. It's like, he's like lobbing 
like a flower petal. Like she's so light. I think you're right. Yeah, it is that kind of it's it's the gentleness on both sides that like yeah, I think you're right. I think that's it. Yep. Uh, all right, so we go back to Karen and Whistler back at uh, the shampoo factory. <laughs> And uh, he said, we find out that vampires drink blood because they need hemoglobin. Uh, they don't manufacture on their own. And so Karen is trying this gene therapy that's meant for sickle cell anemia. And she said, this should work on me, but not Blade, because Blade was born with this. I'm not sure why that makes a difference, but you know, we need a plot reason for it to be Karen and not him. Right. Uh, and I, I wonder, you know, I don't know if this is meant to be uh, this way, but... Sickle cell anemia is a disease that's much more prevalent among African Americans, mm. uh, among African populations, and I, I don't I don't know if that's meant to be something where like, you know, it's because Karen is African American that she's more likely to to hit on this solution to the problem, or that we're supposed to understand like, oh, they're like a, she's a hero for us, you know, you know, as you know for her uh, fellow Africans. To, to come up with this. I, do, I just don't know if they're trying to make some kind of a connection between the fact that this is a, an African American led movie. And this is a, you know, she's referencing this pr- more prominently African American disease, but I, it feels like they, there's something there and I don't know what, um, I did not watch this with commentary on to see if you know, there was, there was anything like that behind the scenes, but I'm not sure, but um, I, I think it's definitely an interesting parallel. Um, if it's if it's if it's an accident, it's a happy one, um, because I think that there is certainly um, something to be drawn from that, uh, because th- there is that sort of, you know, not necessarily hanging a lampshade on it, but there is a you know lived experience there that like you know uh, Whistler, certainly not having a background in hematology, <laughs> but also mm-hmm. you know not coming from. Um, a, a race and a people who you know have are more uh, prone to uh, to suffer from this particular ailment. Um, I had never thought of that before. That's yeah, that's interesting. I would be curious to you know kind of talk because like if Goyer put it into the script, um, but you know Goyer is uh, is uh, a white dude. Um, yeah, and, and, and just to lay down, sickle cell is a, a blood disease where yeah. uh, a certain number of your red blood cells be, have this, you know, kind of sickle shape, you know, like a scythe. Yeah. And because of that, they don't absorb oxygen as well. And so people with this condition, you know, they, they have issues in terms of making sure they have their blood oxygen levels high enough. Um, but again, yeah, I, I, it just feels like there's like, there's a connection there. I just don't see exactly what connection they're trying to make or, you know, or how it's made. It feels like half of an idea. No. Yeah, I just wanted to call and, that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think it's it's definitely interesting. I think that there may be something there, or if there's not, then like I said, like it is. Uh, if it is an accident, it's a happy one because I think that there is a, a connection to be drawn there, whether it was intentional or otherwise. Um, and I think definitely if it is that kind of half idea, you know, it's certainly I think something that at the time that maybe someone. Uh, if not Goyer, then, you know, someone was like, you know, oh, hey, let's incorporate this into it. But, you know, like, you know, we've already got the studio saying, you know, oh, can we make Blade White? Uh, You know, people don't want to see, you know, a a black action hero. People don't want to see a black superhero. Um, 
that you know maybe on some level was like let's include this it's coded into the movie if you know you know but like we're not making it you know like you know the what am i trying to say (laughs) um not hanging a lampshade on it too much not you know like putting not wanting to put it in people's faces like nowadays you would maybe call it out a bit more because you want people to recognize the importance of these uh different lived experiences and the fact that she the background that she comes from not only her scientific background but her background as a black woman um informs her problem solving it's not a detriment to her it's something she can draw from and gives her special insights uh as opposed to here where it's just kind of like well we don't want to alienate anybody but it's there if people want to interpret it or be able to draw from it and be like oh yeah oh she she called on it from that um and i think that's interesting i've never noticed that before i think that's a really good call yeah, again, it's just dropped in there. You said not lampshaded at all. It just it just happens to be mentioned, and it occurred to me. Um, yeah, yeah. It's so, just, like you said. It's you know, and it's a simple throwaway line. You wouldn't even necessarily. You could explain all of this without that in there, but the fact that it is in there, like you know, tying it into this kind of other real world lived experience kind of idea, um, I think is interesting. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily a half idea so much as an idea that they could only explore kind of halfway or like I said, you know, kind of code into the dialogue more so than like explicitly explore it because then you get into, you know, it might do, you know, again, there's, there was a two and a half hour version of this and this isn't the 10 episode Disney plus version of, uh, the blade story. So, you know, we got to keep things moving along at a good clip, but like having just like, let's include this little parenthetical that's going to connect with certain members of the audience who are already, I think drawing more out of the story and that it's resonating with them more for particular reasons that since it's already hitting on those buttons, let's, you know, go ahead and give like a little bit more of that flavor into it. Um, or maybe it was entirely accidental, but you know, maybe they read it that, you know, what authorial intent versus audience interpretation aren't always coincident, but that doesn't invalidate the audience interpretation necessarily. So I think, you know, yeah. And the fact that, you know, it's there to be picked up on, even if it wasn't intended as such, I think it's cool. Yeah. All right, so uh, Karen and Whistler are having this moment when they are attacked by Frost and his goons, and uh, they, you know, um, this is something like, you know, I'm not going to bite you. Um, he kicks him and spits on him, uh, on Whistler, uh, and we kind of get through this quickly because the more important scene is the next one where Blade comes back to find the aftermath of this fracas. Uh, he finds a vampire corpse. He finds Whistler looking real bad. He's taken one in the leg, uh, and he there's a, a video there that he says, play me. So Blade plays it. He finds out Karen was kidnapped by Frost. Uh, Whistler tells him, you know, look, Daywalker blood, day blood is required for this ritual that they're going to do. 
Blade is the chosen one, and he says, Blade, you gotta finish me off. Uh, Blade will not do that, but he gives Frost a gun to do it himself. Uh, he walks away, and uh, there's a gunshot off screen. Uh, Which, of course, of course means gunshot it's a final and definite death of a character that we will never see again. No, I'm just playing, y'all. He comes yes. back in the sequel. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember how, though, I, how they how they bring him back. But, uh, they yes, uh, so there's this gunshot. Uh, the tape had said that they were all at the, the Edgewood Towers and shows Karen there. So Blade does the, you know, the hero loading up on ammo stuff. Um, yeah. He pulls up a, a plant by the roots and cuts them off. So that's a nice metaphor for what he's going to do to his vampire opponents. Um, what I do like about this is that this is basically the suit up scene, but we're not getting like what you would expect in terms of like some thumping music track. It's actually yeah. kind of quiet. Relatively speaking, which is interesting because there's been a whole lot of, you know, thumping techno kind of stuff throughout this whole movie. Um, and I like that they choose this to, to do this the opposite way of what you would normally expect from the the hero getting ready for battle. Yeah. And I think, too, the the fact that it uh, kind of mirrors and Blade's whole aesthetic in his room is really drawing from uh, elements of uh, samurai culture. And the way in which the very deliberate manner in which he's preparing himself and getting these things together and the, you know, cutting off of the roots, I think is, uh, and someone can correct me on it, but uh, I think is a, um, a samurai, like almost like a declaring himself a Ronin sort of thing of like cutting off the roots of you know this sort of cultivating of the plant of the um of this life was regarded as this you know like deep responsibility and it's this you know sense of duty and then when you are left asterless for whatever reason that the gesture of cutting the roots off of the plant is declaring yourself um masterless rudderless rootless now you know which was not regarded as a great honor in samurai society like we've kind of romanticized the notion of ronin because it's like you know oh yeah the the badass warrior that has no master to them it was a source of great shame and i think like the fact that even the scene before when he's when he's dealing with whistler when whistler's underneath the sheet and blade can't even look at him as he's pulling the sheet off and he can't be the one to pull the trigger. Like there's a, there's a deep shame in blade here of his failure with Whistler, his failure, um, which I think in his mind, kind of that traumatized mind, of course it makes no logical sense, but his failure to save his mother, um, his, and in this moment where, you know, kind of talking about the scene before where he's leaning more into the, you know, heroic aspects of his personality and uh, the, the, the nobler, uh, gentler angels of his being, he comes back and the person, his father is dead because he wasn't there to protect him. It's his Peter Parker moment, really. It's like, you know, Whistler is his right. Uncle Ben. Um, and so this sort of 
suiting up at the same time you're destroying these aspects of your former life um it's really cool but then you really get into the deeper meaning of the symbols and it's kind of a very sad very deeply tragic scene in a sense it's like you know yeah we're used to seeing these you know like badass montages get the weapons ready get the armor on yeah we're gonna go and ride out and fight the bad guys but this one feels very sad and like you said you know the 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 musical choice in this moment and the kind of more somber sedate very deliberate way in which it's portrayed um i think really helps illustrate that and enhances that aspect of this element of his journey he has to ride off and be the hero but he is not feeling particularly heroic in this moment yeah i i had this uh, in my notes as metaphor time and uh, i think <laughs> exactly. you nailed it <laughs> um, so uh, uh we, we and have like i've said many between... times and I, I haven't said it yet this episode so i've got to say it here in superheroes metaphor is reality the metaphor is right everything like you know there there is no you know like subtext is text in a superhero story and so you know everything you know anytime you see a symbol in a superhero story it is it is what it is it is that deeper thing but the deeper thing is also what it is it's like which is one of the reasons i love the genre so much um and so yeah you know anytime you see a metaphor or a symbol in a superhero movie like it ain't subtle. <laughs> no. Uh, so we, the next scene is Karen and, and Frost having their kind of, you know, face off. Um, uh, and, you know, there's not much to say about this other than this is kind of your classic scene where the villain says, like, you know, you'll see. Uh, you know, I'm going to kick some ass. And she says, no, Blade's going to, you know, Blade's going to win. You're, you'll, you, know, you can't turn the world into vampires, blah, blah, blah. And, it, you know. It's fine, um, but this is, you know, I don't think the scene adds much other than just giving these two characters a chance to kind of talk to each other. Um, yeah, it's it's, it's, you know, it's a functional scene. Um, yeah. And it's it it's fine for what it is. I agree. I just don't think it, add, it narratively, it doesn't add a whole lot. It doesn't, you know, get, tell us anything we don't already know. Uh, no, but I just wanted yeah, to have a scene Blade, with these two yeah. characters together on screen. And like you said, it's, it's a trope, especially of that era of... Like, you know, taunting the essentially, you know, like we've said, you know, the it's damsel. a little more complicated here, but, you know, it's the taunting of the love interest who he's, you know, taken hostage to, you know, draw blade in. Um, this is classic action movie 101. I've stolen your girlfriend. Hee hee ha ha. Come and face me at the waterfront kind of stuff yeah. and then you have the scene at the waterfront where you know she's chained up over the shark pit and he's like yes when blade shows up you will see the glory of you know i don't know why deacon is suddenly uh german in my mind especially Blofeld. when udo kier yeah. already died in this movie so. yeah um so we get a uh, blade is coming we hear revving he just drives into this lobby and shoots everyone. This is this whole shootout in this lobby very much reminds me of the uh, a similar scene in Terminator Two in the oh, lobby yeah. of uh, what's it Cyberdyne Industries. Yeah, uh, very 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 similar scene, uh, but still cool. Lots of shooting, lots of guns, lots of action. Uh, Frost tries to lock things down, and we get this fight between Blade and uh, I just called them in my notes the Taser Duo. 
these two dudes uh, with tasers. And uh, this is a great fight. It's really well choreographed. Again, yeah. uh, sort of like the one we talked about earlier. Um, and uh, I, it ends with Blade using Karen's serum. And they do this, like, big trouble in Little China thing. Where <laughs> yes, they kind of, exactly. like, semi... They, like, inflate in, like... They sort of bubble up in these, like, weird, like, lumpy ways and then just explode. They just go pop like a balloon. Yeah. Everyone becomes uh, pearl before they yeah. pop. <laughs> right. It's it's gross. Uh, it's a nice bit of body horror. And, again, uh, important to show us, one, that Karen's serum works. And then we know what it can do later in the climax of the movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, a sure. really fun scene. Uh, so we go to this white room. Uh, where Blade, he sees the, the CGI, you know, cylinder one more time. They're driving that home. And then this white cube opens up, and his mom steps out. You know, she calls him Eric. It's the first time we've heard his real name. And uh, she she explains that, you know, she, she came back. Deacon welcomed, welcomed him. Uh, you know, Frost confirms he's the one who bit his mother. And this is where we get the line that we're one big happy fucking family. And uh, you know this was this struck this was really surprised me the first time I, I you know again you know maybe the the thing about Deacon being the one who bit his mom would come back around I figured that was either that or it would be a sequel hook but uh, I did not expect mom to come back and in fact I you know they really did drive home that idea that Karen looks like his mother because the first time I saw this I thought it was Karen at first I was confused because I did not I was just not expecting mom at all and I thought oh. They've been teasing Karen is going to turn into a vampire, and it happened. That's yeah. the, but that was my initial read, and then I was like, "Oh wait, no, that's not. It's, wait, it is the same lady. Hey, what's going on?" Like it, it definitely took a couple of like ticks for the, the processor to to realize what was happening, uh, and I, that's intentional. I mean, it's clearly that's what they want to happen. I think the way this is shot, and like the interesting thing too is that they, she shows up earlier in the film. Like, we see Frost in this room earlier, and she's in the bed, and it's the same uh, actor. Um, And it's such a, they do such a good job with, like, the hair and makeup, and she's kind of filmed from far away, that you don't realize it's her. Like, they show her to you. Like, in the movie, before she shows up here, and you still don't get it until this moment. Um, and this is, uh, this is a really great actor. Uh, her name is, uh, uh, Sana Lothan. I think I, I'm, I'm, I apologize if I, uh, butchered the name there. I, I've never heard it pronounced, but, um, I've really enjoyed, uh, a number of things I've seen her in, uh, over the years. Um, primarily, uh, Love and Basketball, uh, is a really great movie, uh, that she's in. Um, and uh, uh, for animation fans, uh, she is also uh, voices the role of Donna Tubbs on uh, Family Guy and uh, The Cleveland Show. Um, so just to give you a sense of the uh, uh, breadth and depth of her uh, acting career, uh, Blade, Love and Basketball, and Family Guy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, uh, you know, a neat it, again. It's a neat trick to bring her back. That's that's I think the real twist is that she, she, you know, she's appearing and she's appearing here. Yeah. Because like you said, we we did see her. We saw her in the movie, but it was way back in the beginning and not for very long. And her hair and makeup is so different 
you know, so they, they're really counting on you to, you know, to take a while to figure out, oh, wait, it's mom. It's not, you know, it's not a turned Karen. It's a nice misdirect. Yeah. And uh, you just like when, and yeah. when you see her um, earlier in, in Deacon's bed, like you're just like, it's like, oh, OK, this is just, you know, some random vampire, maybe familiar that, you know, Deacon's hooking up with, you know, these vampires, they're, you know, hedonists, they're hooking up left and right, you know, maybe, you know, whatever's going on. And so you don't like think to connect the dots there, even though it's, you know, the same actor, you know, we see like she looks different in, you know, that scene versus when we see her in flashback. And so then when we see her again here, it just like, and then we immediately get the through line of all three of those dots, all three of those appearances. Um, But that there is that sort of moment of, because, we know that um, Karen reminded Blade of her. That then, when she steps out, like there's <laughs> there's this like layered misdirect going on in like multiple directions of just like, wait, that's the girl from the bed. Wait, is that Karen? Wait, that, oh, that's his mom. Oh my god. Wait, Karen's his mom? No, he thought Karen. Well, wait, hold on. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's really well done, and the the dyna- her performance in this role. Uh, really just very rich very uh, she brings a lot to it that you know especially for like coming in at the very end and really only having like two or three big ish scenes she really brings a lot to it and i think uh you need uh, a really good actor that can you know can bring uh those dimensions to um a part that doesn't have a lot of material to draw from. Yeah, she's got to do a lot of work with very few lines to do it. Especially for and playing that, a British whore from the 1920s. Uh, wait, no, sorry, sorry. That's the comics. Mm-hmm. That's it. Uh, so Blade is in prison with Karen in the back of a truck. He says he wants her miracle cure. And she says, you know, we, I can use it on you, but it will make you completely human. You'll lose all of your superpowers uh, at a time when they might come in handy. Uh, they are then dropped into what we will learn is called the Temple of Eternal Night, which is the real version of this CGI cylinder we've been seeing over and over again throughout the movie. Uh, we see that Logan, I'm sorry, uh, yes, Donald Logue, excuse me, has uh, Blade's <laughs> signature sunglasses. Uh, Frost has the council there, uh, and he explains the temple. this temple was built for the blood god. He talks about Blade's sword for a bit. He deactiv- he appears to deactivate the, the spring-loaded blades in the handle. He acts like he's about to cut off Donald Logue's arm, but it is a fake-out, which is fine. You know, they finally, <laughs> it's uh, such a good bit. Turn that one around. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's like, oh, no, you know, he, his own guy's going to cut his arm off just because... Oh, uh, uh, come on, you know, come on, Dean, what do. are you doing, man? Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, I'm just joshing with you. It's yeah. like, it's, I don't know, like, it's... They're dynamic throughout. Like, they, they don't... You know, it's it's color in every scene that they're in, but you really do get the sense of like, you know, oh yeah, they're they're just buddies, they're just bros. Like this is a, he's not just a minion. Like these guys like hanging out together, <laughs> kind of thing. Like yeah. And this is another yet another one of these things that we're about to get, which is like more like world building, but like half the world, half of world building. Like we got with the little girl, and we got with Pearl. Uh, but Karen is led into these pits with these creatures that were told are like. They they were bitten by vampires, but they didn't turn all the way into vampires. So they're more like zombies. They're you know they'll just yeah. eat anything. These like failed uh, vampires, and it, one of them is um, 
Curtis from earlier, our uh, you know not quite Nathan Fillion. <laughs> and he's just like, are you having second thoughts about us? Which is a great like, oh, he's still horny for her even after this. Uh, and uh, she she kicks his ass and, and starts climbing out of the pit. Uh, Mom cuts Blade's shirt off and leads him to a a blade shaped carbonite slab, basically. <laughs> And, you know, he's, oh, she's ta- sort of taunting him, like, trying to comfort him. Oh, poor child, so sick, so thirsty. Um, you know, talking about his, his you know, barely contained bloodlust. Uh, and we can see now he's tired. Like, he's, he really does need blood. Like, he's, you know, he doesn't know energy anymore. And he hasn't had the, the serum in a while. And he says, you know, my mother died a long time ago. She's, you know, she says, I hunted, I killed, I enjoyed it. The thirst always wins. Uh, and then the, the, like kind of the, the, the machine or the chamber, whatever you want to call it, uh, cuts blades wrist and his daywalker blood starts draining down into a hole. The other vampires then take their places on the, uh, on the glyphs. Um, so now, you know, we, we know of course that this is starting the process of summoning La Magra. Yeah. Uh, anything, anyone to add on this scene or just keep moving? <laughs> Cause this is kind of all like plot, plot, plot. <laughs> yeah no it's a, yeah we're we're just trucking along and getting into uh you know like i mean i already referenced before kind of some of the uh or at least what i read is kind of a little psychosexual freudian kind of subtext between oh we're getting his there, mom in that yeah. scene and the you know kind of the little like you know the iron maiden he gets you know slammed into and um so yeah i mean it's all just you know kind of and it's all moving. Yeah, I mean, this is the clip that the movie moves along at this point. Like, we are not lingering anywhere. It's just kind of like, okay, we got to get through all this to get to the big fight. Like, it's like all right, yeah, we're getting blood, get the climax, the cliffs, the climax is a coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so the, you know, the sky starts, you know, uh, looking ominous, and uh, you know, the council. We hear one of these council members say, "Oh, this whole Lamagra thing is a fairy tale," and then uh, Mercury basically snaps back. You know, she is the fanatic. You know, and she kills one of them with blade sword, which I guess doesn't disrupt the ritual. Uh, but Karen climbs up and releases blade, uh, you know, trying to rescue him. And he's you know pretty wiped out. Uh, we get a lot quick line here uh, where Donald Logue says, uh, "We're going to be naughty vampire gods," which is like, <laughs> uh, he's such a shit. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, this guy is so douchey, and I love him for it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then we get to the scene that you referenced a couple times now where Blade is so wiped out and tired. And Karen just says, you just got to bite me. Yeah. You got to do it. And um, we get this scene uh, where he's like, we're kind of intercutting with the, the Blade's Daywalker blood now drip, dripping down onto the council members. Um, we hear, you know, Frost say, everybody thirsty? Meanwhile, Blade is probably drinking too much from Karen and, you know, not, not a hard comparison to make. This is, you know, clearly coded as sexual. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, you know, they're the moaning, the, the screaming, the, you know, everything. Uh, There's a not, lot more thrusting to, than biting you know, normally involves. In this scene. Yeah. And it's like escalating towards a, you know, a, a climax of some kind as he continues to drink from her. Um, but of course this does recharge his batteries. Meanwhile, um, you know, the blood drips on frost, there's lightning everywhere. Mom attacks blade. Um, and 
uh, Karen is, sneaks up. She shoots a guard. Vampires are like, they seemingly are melting. And Blade kills his mom. Uh, then we get a place where, you know, again, we talked about the CGI being creaky here. Um, this is ridiculous. So all of the vampire lords, <laughs> like CGI, like vampire skeletons with wings, like climb out of their mouths. And they're like ghostly. So they're like, excuse <coughs> me flying like through frost as his eyes are turning more red and this yeah. is where it's like uh, you know i don't know what they should have done instead of this but it, yeah it just looks pretty bad in terms of cg it's it's uh, so 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 bad uh i mean like this is like you know dwayne johnson this feels in like, the second uh, mummy movie is shaking his head at this footage right now <laughs> this is so yeah that's pretty bad too bad like oh it's it, uh, like you know, it's one of those moments you just laugh. I mean, like not as bad as the like bloodstorm that almost was, uh, which oh yeah, we're, we're getting we're to about it, about to get to. But who man would have been yeah. on the same page? This is like, you know, this it reminds me of like I don't know, like PlayStation One era video game graphics, or like even like computer CD-ROM games of that vintage, you know, mid '90s yeah. stuff. Like, it's real weak, and it's like, you know, definitely Hollywood was capable of producing better, and I don't know if it's a budget thing or, or what. Um, oh, it's got to be a budget was, thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I think, like, if you had had the body horror of, like, a practical skeleton coming out of the mouth, that would have looked amazing. Oh, yeah. Like, Cronenberg did shit like that in the 80s, and it would have looked so, so cool. And then you can, you know, if they're flying around quickly and they're kind of ghostly... Um, you might be able to get away with this a little more. Like those scenes don't look quite as bad, but the scene where they like climb out of the mouth is just like, nah, they they, they couldn't do that in 1998. Um, yeah, but I think you would have like you probably could have had an option of that of like you know having the actual practical kind of skeletal feature, but you know someone was you know like on the on the line producer just pointing out like you know it's like. Well, you know, we can hire an in-house studio and do that for half the cost, rather than trying to get like a you know skeleton puppet to crawl out of you know someone's mouth that we're going to have to do a digital composite with anyway. And they're like, yeah, all right, do that. Yeah, we're <laughs> it's the end of the movie. <laughs> We've already got their money. Yeah, the kids like this stuff, right? Jurassic Park. The kids like the CGI. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, spared so no expense. Now, Only you know, we spared some expenses. Yes. Uh, so Blade jumps into the pit, and I love this. Uh, Donal Logue comes at him, and and like instead of getting a fight between them, Blade just like beheads them, beheads him immediately, and in one fell swoops, snatches his sunglasses out of the air, Ooh. and that's when the techno music kicks in. It's almost like um, uh, David Caruso on CSI. He grabs his, <laughs> his sunglasses. And he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so then he does like he. There's some vampire, that, you know, scrub that comes at him, and he does this like. Roadhouse style throat rip, yeah. And he's like, you know, and uh, you know, so we're we're in like total climax time now. Yeah, this is um, the, the the sunglasses really are. This is this is Popeye getting his spinach. This is Thor yes. has put his hand out and Mjolnir has returned to it, and now we are ready to actually fight. Yeah, and so uh, Karen takes care of Mercury with some mace. And her head just explodes, uh, which is cool. <laughs> Because you Blade have to, fights to because get to only this is the thing that drives me wild in so many movies, and like, and they still do it sometimes, but like they're moving more and more away from it. But like 
that you have to have like the girl fight like oh we've got a main female character so we need to make sure that there is a female villain for her to fight and since blade has to kill his mom okay so make up this uh super fast character and it like it just reeks of so many so many bad things um and 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 i know this is like over 20 years ago but anytime i see something like this in a film and you're just like just do better you know like yeah boys can fight girls i'm not saying that boys should hit girls but you know and girls can fight boys i'm not saying that girls should hit boys i'm not saying that anybody should hit each other but it's an action movie where people are fighting each other let's get a little co-ed with it you know like there's we don't need to have the boy and girls leagues of the hero villain fights is all i'm saying so now we get into, you know, the the final duel here between Frost and Blade. And in the theatrically released movie, uh, it's a sword fight, which is good because you have this character whose signature uh, weapon and his name is Blade. Yes. And, you know, so we should have a sword fight. That is how it's, you know, that makes the most sense. And we can tell he's, you know, he is with La Magra because Blade cuts him in half and he just comes right back together again. And so he kicks his sword into this stone crack up high where Karen's um, miracle serum is hanging there. The sword does the bit where it expands and the, the the little blades spring out, which is enough to crack the stone to the point where the serum falls out, falls down. Um, and Blade says, well, some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. And I um, cheer every damn time he says it because... That line makes no sense, and I don't care because it's awesome. <laughs> that is the yeah, like is that is peak snipe ad lib right there. <laughs> yes, uh, but the serum makes uh, Stephen Dorff do the same big trouble in Little China explode uh, thing. And say, Let's get out of here now. So that's the climax of the theatrical movie. We finally we've talked about this many times now. Let's talk about yeah. the deleted scene. Let's get into uh, it. <laughs> that you can and you can find it. On, I watched it. You can find it on YouTube. Yep. Holy shit! Um, he, it's so, so bad. The, it's so bad. So he turns into, and part of why it's so bad is that the CGI work just doesn't work. Like I don't know if this. It would definitely be better if the effects were better. I still don't know if it'd be as good as what we got because again, no sword fight feels weird. Yeah, but and given so what the, even is, what we saw of the kind of La Magra effect when like when he cuts the hand off and it grows back, or when he cuts him in two and the like kind of blood tether brings him back together, even the quality of CGI there, if that was what we were gonna get for the giant blood storm No. It still was it like what you see on YouTube is not a fully rendered version, of course. It's you know, it's it's practically an animatic just with the actual actors in it but it's still when I you hope just, so. like superimpose in your mind like what you know of the quality of cgi in the fight up to that point and then like extrapolate it into this giant blood cloud which is what he becomes first of all yeah um i, I don't know maybe maybe hollywood have, would have learned its lesson sooner of the don't make your uh, giant world-ending uh, supervillain a cloud. Um, maybe they would have learned that lesson sooner had it appeared here. But 
Uh, <laughs> we could have been spared a number of, uh, of Fantastic Fours and Green Lanterns and whatnot. But yeah, this, so this is a, we should just describe it. So he turns into like a tornado of blood, but it's not even blood. They're like these red blobs, yeah. poorly rendered CGI spheres. It's sort of like when you, when you used to go to the movies and they would do the like buy Pepsi and popcorn thing at the beginning. Yeah. And when, the, when those were CGI in the early days of CGI and you get like, Ooh, Pepsi, um, it looks like that. That's exactly and what it, it's but, like. It's not even like a like, lava lamp. It's just, it's like someone's bad drawing of a lava lamp. <laughs> and then every once in a while, Stephen Dorff's like bust, like you know, from his like, you know, shoulders up, just sort of pops out of it to like deliver a line of dialogue. <laughs> and uh, so, and again, I think Wesley Snipes is a thing where he kind of runs up the side of the cylinder to get to the serum. He releases the serum into the air where it becomes a cloud of like blue blobs, CGI blobs and the blue CGI blobs touch the red CGI blobs and it all goes kablooey. Um, it's cloud versus it's cloud just, and it's it, awful. Yeah. <laughs> it's really bad. It's like, it's I don't know like, at what point you thought like, like you should have come to, like you said, the name of the movie is blade. You should have come to, climactic sword fight a lot quicker before you got to hey you know what would be really cool and interesting a cloud fight no nobody wants to see that we want to see blade with a blade fighting a guy with a blade yeah and i get that we've we've had this la magra dropped a bunch of times like in, in some some parties like i want to see it i want to see the blood god but yeah. if you can't deliver a cthulhu don't you know you're you know you'd have to do that to make this work or you would see like you know like a cloud or like a a tear in reality you could see like eyes and tentacles coming through you're getting a glimpse of this thing while they fight or something but you know to understand that it's coming through but then they stop it right there's ways to do that but this this is just i mean there's it's not it's just so bad like no no wonder they cut it and so they made the right call anyway it is very funny go find it on youtube um and so they we we have the very end here. We have this L.A. sunrise here. They say, you know, it's not, Karen says, it's not over. You know, keep, the, Blade says, keep the cure. You want to help? Make me a better serum. And then we just cut to this scene in Moscow where a vampire <laughs> attacks a lady. Blade jumps in to intervene. He says, catch you at a bad time. And that's the end of the movie. Tovarish. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really fun you know the the takeaway from this is you know just how much kind of pulpy fun this is you know it's it's not a great movie but you know you throw it on on a saturday afternoon make yourself a bowl of popcorn and you're not going to be sad with you know your time with this movie and i think um, it it knows what movie it is it knows what movie it's trying to be it's drawing on these like you said very pulpy kind of genres you know b horror 80s action uh you know darker superhero kind of vibes black exploitation and these are all very arch very focused on spectacle and fun and just pure enjoyment where and the fact that you know that they can still have good emotional moments through all of that is really wonderful but at the end of the day, you know, it's a movie about 
a guy with a sword fighting vampires. And that's awesome. And so just be awesome. Yeah, again, Wesley's life took the role because he said, I want to see a black vampire do karate. Yeah. And you know what? That That's what you get. The, 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 it, you know, you don't need it to be any more than that. That pitch is enough fun to sustain this 90-minute movie. Uh, and I, my memory, again, not having seen these a lot, is that I think Blade Two is the best of the three. So I'm looking forward to revisiting that to confirm if that's in fact true or that's just you know a false memory I have. But you know, it's a fun franchise. You know, this is again laying the groundwork for what would eventually be the MCU, and 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 building you know just trying to figure out what should a a, a proper modern comic book movie look like. And uh, you know, this is a step in that direction. It's going to be answered by X Men. It's going to be answered by uh, Raimi's Spider Man movies uh, and maybe a few others. And then we'll get Iron Man. Um, but I'm really glad we picked this one to revisit because it it, it was a lot of fun uh, to just to go back into this world um, to do a little do a little '90s action uh, in, in a way that you know, like I said, really recalls like the first Matrix movie. Uh, and other things of this era. Um, so, yeah, uh, probably time to wrap this up. So, uh, a couple little things. One, of course, uh, if you want to reach out to us, go to at go to the Marvels on Twitter. That's the best way to contact us. Uh, if you like what you heard, please go to iTunes and drop us a review. Uh, that, that helps us out a lot. And, of course, we'll, we'll read any reviews you drop or any feedback you send us through Twitter. Uh, we're happy to do that. And we should announce our, our next movie, because uh, we got to keep trucking along through the MCU, we're doing The Incredible Hulk. Uh, remember, that's the one starring Edward Norton. Do not torture yourself by watching the one with Eric Bana. Uh, <laughs> when it's time for that, we'll let you know. We'll let we're you know. Have we'll give you fair enough warning. We'll hang up some safety cones. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll have fun with that when we get there. There's a lot, you know. There's a lot of bad movie podcasts for a reason, and uh, that's that's a, it'll be really fun to cover that. But for now, we're doing. Uh, the Incredible Hulk, which is fine. It's it's not a bad movie. I think it gets a bad rap. I think it's okay. Um, I think that is a, that is a perfect summation of its quality. It is not a bad movie. <laughs> uh, I you know you still have a good time with it, and I think we'll have yeah. A there's good time a lot of fun. In fun it. There to, is yeah yeah yeah. I, I, I give know. it a lot of guff just because like I mean, you know, at a certain point, you know, when you're it is my least favorite MCU film, but that's like saying it's like my. Uh, least favorite uh, uh, peanut butter. Like I love peanut butter, and you know my least favorite one at the end of the day still peanut butter. Um. Yeah, I, I think that's a good summation of it as well. You know, it's it's a little bit of the redheaded stepchild of the MCU, but I think that's undeserved to a degree. And I think you know it'll be fun to revisit it with a more critical eye. Yeah. Um, to see you know what works and what doesn't work. Uh, so that'll do it. Uh, anything you want to plug, Jordan, before we sign off? Um, no, unfortunately, um, due to the state of the world right now, I don't have a, a whole lot of, uh, projects. We, uh, my, my local theaters that I'm uh, normally active with are, uh, uh, taking an understandably, uh, cautious time right now. Um, I do have, uh, some, uh, other projects in the works, uh, particularly in the podcast realm that I think I'll probably have a 
have something to announce maybe on our next episode. So I'm just going to hint at it for right now. And all I will say, uh, just to tease it just a little bit, um, is if you are a fan of uh, some of my past work in other media, you will probably enjoy uh, the the next podcast that I have coming out. Um, so feel free to look me up on IMDb if you want <laughs> further clues about what it might be about. <laughs> Cryptic. Uh, like a vampire Bible. Uh, I'll just reference... Uh, ah, 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 uh, ah. Ah, ah. I'll just reference... Uh, I do have another podcast. It's been on hiatus uh, for this last year, but it's called A Podcast But Evil. Um, and each episode... Uh, focuses in on a different villain, either real or, you know, or fictional. And uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm hoping we can get that back up and running relatively soon. I'm crossing my fingers to see if that happens, but uh, you know, it depends on a lot of variables. But uh, go check it out. There's, uh, I think, 35, 36 episodes of that show, and uh, they're a lot of fun. So uh, with that, I think we can close this out. So, uh, Jordan? Excelsior. <laughs> Enough said. What's in here? Nothing. It's just a storeroom. But you're wasting your time. There's nothing of importance to anyone. Then you won't mind if I take a peek. No! They moved.